Hello. Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome, welcome back to the B side. Uh, I have no idea what episode <laughs> this is, but we're here. We got my um, my friend Giles, um, who I met at the climbing gym. Funny enough, as as one usually does. With yeah, friends. truly. And um, I don't know. We hit it off, and now we're here. It seems. Yeah. Um, how how how's your how's your day been? My my day's been you know fine like most days <laughs> go. Not much happened. Um, work obviously, but um, yeah. And then I I changed some well started changing some brake pads on the car, and now I'm now I'm here. Exciting. Um, you you just almost bought a farm, didn't you? That that is what's almost happened, and then didn't very sadly. Uh, yeah, we're we're moving to uh, we're, we're looking to move out of uh, Vancouver out east um not that far out east but to maple ridge which is really not that far out east um and uh yes we've been looking looking to to get a place um very lucky to be able to do that and uh yeah farm came up three acres and it's just like we went into this like mad what could our life be if we had a farm It, it was like this whole like obsession of like and then we'd have to get a ride on tractor thing and then we could build a studio and then like oh in a few years we could build a new house on it and have our dream home uh and then so when we didn't get it which was somewhat unexpected unex- uh, because like obviously other people wanted to buy it and they have more money than us um it was a bit of a blow but uh yeah i mean it was just such a cool cool idea like it seems like a nice little dream, you know, have a farm. But I'm I'm sure you'll find something. Something will come up. Some, something will come up, yeah. Um, and and I think like, you know, hopefully in a few years, the different farm will come up. Yeah, some even better. Something where you can get the sewage or the septic checked before you buy it. Right. It would be nice, and and that wasn't half flooded half the time. Yeah. Yeah. It was like three meters above sea level. The whole thing. Oh wow. So we were a bit like, okay, but sea level rise is a thing and uh i'd prefer to still have a house yeah it's a good thing to have a house in a few years yeah we were like well you know it's the um the bc disaster relief route it was just past uh, highway seven lockheed highway and like that's a designated like disaster relief route so we were like they'll probably stop that from going underwater so the house probably be fine this is a good contingency um (laughs) I just found out that you also make YouTube videos. I I've been known to, yeah, um, in not for a while. Not for a while. Not what for, what what do you do? Where can we find you on the internet? Uh, we can find me almost trivially by by googling my full name. Um, I very cleverly do everything with my full name, which is very unique. And so my digital footprint is quite <laughs> obvious. Um, but yeah, you can, you can, you can find me, uh, my, my YouTube channel is Giles Barton Earn. uh, my Instagram is Giles Barton Earn Ceramics or G Barton Earn Ceramics. And, um, that's the main places you'll find me. Cool. Well, well, uh, if you're curious after listening and you want to check, check, uh, Giles out, please go find them. I can put links and whatnot in the description yeah. if you want. And, um, I don't know. It's pretty exciting. So you mentioned ceramics. <laughs> Yeah, so I think ceramics is like I was gonna say. If if you want to look somewhere of interesting stuff, then then the Instagram is probably the best place to go, um, because that's where my ceramics live, and it also has my my link to my like climbing Instagram. Although that's pretty empty. Um, 
but yeah, I, so I, I, I've been doing ceramics for a, a few years and I sort of settled on like a, a very stark sculptural style that's like quite characteristic, but I haven't quite settled on what it is yet. But um, I think it's quite uh, distinct. I, I would say so. I'm, I'm very impressed by your ceramics. I, I'm very pleased with them. Yeah, I, I would think, hope you would be. Yeah, I, I think, you know, to start with, I, I really liked ceramics from the second I like started, which was uh, just before COVID. And um, like the second I took my first class, it was like, oh, this is fantastic. You haven't been at it very long then. No, I mean, you know, it's... Um, I, I, the whole of last year, not 2022, 2021, I, I didn't work from May through to like uh, August last year. So for about 16 months, I did nothing but uh, ceramics, climbing and moving to Canada. That sounds like a pretty fun few months, doesn't it? It was pretty fantastic. Yeah, it was like a 16 month sabbatical um, where the move obviously took about a month of that. But other than that, it was just, you know, hanging about doing what I wanted and uh, recovering from quite a lot of burnout and... uh, planning the move and things um but i mean it's such a a really wonderful opportunity to be able to do that because it sort of doesn't come along every day where life hands you an excuse to really just laze around and work on what you want to do yeah that's that's a a a nice turn of fate i guess yeah and i think i i felt like excused in it because at least in the uk i don't know about here like a lot of people take a year out between school and university and um i didn't do that and like i worked quite a lot of the summers over university doing like placements and stuff and so i never had like a decent time off during that so i was like oh this is just my gap year just like six years later um which is nice because it's when you have like the independence to do whatever you want and you're not forced to like borrow three hundred dollars of your parents to like go and have a weekend in a tent somewhere you know you, you have a little bit of of money to like do the things that you want like going doing ceramics or learning yeah. how to snowboard one afternoon or something cool um what is the process like for ceramics like how do you do it where do you do it uh could you take me through making a piece like what what would an average ceramics creation look like from start to finish well i I'll, i guess i'll go through the the average and then like my process because it's kind of a little bit more protracted well i want to okay, hear your yeah. process um so it's so a broadly you've got uh so what for now where i do it is my my kitchen table um i haven't done very much recently but um, i'm planning to have a studio and in the uk i i was part of a like a membership studio we had like 40 people in in this in a space and um that was super super energizing like working next to other really talented people and just working next to other people um it's so cool um so the process basically you start with your wet clay um in my case you know you buy clay and then i i do some mixing of some extra stuff into it which is um a a bit of a a pain um and then you just start making your shape in some way so there's there's a few different ways there's hand building where you just sort of like coil building like a you might have done it in class or something and um that's sort of the technique that I use. And then a lot of people do wheel throwing where you take like a lump of clay and you put it on the head of a wheel, which spins and you sort of just smush it upwards into a shape. Uh, and that's incredible, magically, uh, incredibly magical feeling because it's, uh, I, I really love wheel throwing. Um, 
And then there's some other techniques, like you just roll big sheets of clay out and then just sort of join them together. So it's called slab building. Um, and then some people like cast stuff and things like that. And there's a whole uh, like manufacturing process of ceramics for if you're, build if you're making like plates by the thousands, then you have a different technique than you don't have like a guy like throwing the pot and <laughs> and having to. And so once you've done that, you leave it to dry a little bit and then you usually carve quite a lot of it away again. Oh. So so you're telling me I could make pottery without a wheel? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can make pottery with, with some clay and uh, your hands only. That sounds awesome. I would love to try that. I, I think that there's a huge uh, reward, I think, in making pottery tools to make your pottery with. Like to make some, because it's very elemental pottery. I think it's one one of the reasons it really appeals to me is it's sort of you and the mud, and then the fire, and then you have something that is effectively stone. And I'm not like I'm not a big like spiritual kind of person generally, but it, it is it is quite primal and like elementary in a way that a lot of things that you do in life aren't. Um, and I think. It also has this, it has somewhat a character of its own, like the clay wants to do what the clay wants to do. And you're not the kind of master of it. You try and be, but like you've got to work with the material because it is after all, basically a liquid to start with. And then as it becomes not a liquid, it is just then a bit of dust held together by sort of hopes and dreams. And then when you fire it, it's suddenly this material that is like immutable. It, you know, will outlast all of us by by thousands of years like it will outlast our hope of what a civilization could be by thousands of years and i i find that really quite a responsibility but also like kind of cool it's it's extremely cool yeah um you've you very much just motivated me to buy a lump of clay because i've been wanting to get into pottery for a long time you, you can you can borrow some clay off me i have so much clay you want to get together sometime? Yeah, or? let's do some clay stuff. All That'd right. be so cool. Another episode. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd just love to try that. That'd yeah. be awesome. Um, so what, once, you've, once you let it dry a bit, um, you carve a lot of it away. And that's where the handmade tools can really come in, even on the wheel. Um, you know, I've done stuff with like chunks of brick that I've found lying around. And then um, the, the person who taught me how to throw, like the teacher at my studio, um, he did a lot of carving away with like bits of wood that he just sort of got and then just use those as tools and they they leave the mark of the tool on the the work so it's um and then once it's dried fully you you put it in a in a kiln and you fire it up to like 1100 degrees c i don't know what that is in fahrenheit for everybody else um we don't need anything else it's celsius is good it's 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 definitely red hot right it's hot enough you're gonna burn yourself uh and um and then it cools down and then, so typically you you fire it to about a thousand degrees C, and then uh, you put glazes on, um, which are basically glass ish, um, and then you fire it again to a hotter temperature, and it and it melts the glazes. So like on these mugs that we've got, the smooth surface that you're feeling is effectively a glass layer on top of the the pot. So from what I understand the glaze to be, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's yeah. like um. It's like little glass particles suspended in liquid, and then when you heat it up enough, it all melts and soaks into the to the clay or the the material it's on. It, it mostly just stays on the surface. Okay. So glazes actually build up a surprisingly thick layer when oh. you 
you know, like half a millimeter, millimeter, sometimes even more on top of the surface of the pot. Neat. It's partly why I don't use glazes. You don't? Yeah, because because they add that much space on the pot. They soften and they're a liquid, right? When, they're, when they freeze effectively during the firing, um, they, they round out detail. Yeah, I, I've noticed looking at the work that you've made, you have a lot of like harsher edges, which I don't think is super the norm in pottery. No, and like, and very much reliant on texture and stuff. Yeah, um, it's not partly because pottery is like very caught up in making practical work, like functional things, um, which is very fair because most pottery is for using for stuff. Um, but, and it's more like hard wearing and easier to clean and all of all of the stuff that you want out of a functional item. Um, I've done some functional wear that's also textured on the outside. Um, so it's not it's not a requirement, but you kind of want where liquid is going to be glazed because otherwise it is a huge pain to clean. Like you can't use a sponge on it or you get like the nails on the chalkboard thing and it's horrible. No, fair enough. Fair enough. So um, I remember I was talking to you a while back. You said you were like chiseling at one of the pieces you were doing to get these like ridges in it. Mm. So at what point in the process would you be doing something like that? So, so I think possibly that the chiseling was like when it's bone dry, that's very rare to be touching the clay. So like when it's fully dry, um, I was using like a little chisel and a hammer to chisel away the surface. And that's kind of a, a technique that I've been experimenting with that like does exist in the wider pottery sphere because it's basically everything has been done in pottery because it's been around since humans have been making things basically. Um, but it's a pretty unusual technique because it generates a huge amount of dust and the, the dust uh, gives you silicosis. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. It's not good. And like also my clay has um, a lot of um, metal uh, oxides in it. Like it has a load of magnesium oxide in it that also um, makes you eventually have uh, mental uh, acuity issues. Damn. So good to wear a respirator. Respirator. I did that all outside. Um, it, it was still, I was too dusty by the end of it. I should have been a bit more careful, but, um, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, what a cool art form. I, I really like it. You know, it's like sculpture and you can make sculpture that, that like does stuff, you know, that you use smugs and stuff, or you can just make sculpture that isn't about to go anywhere. And it's a bit easier than stone carving, which is like the only other form that has that sort of longevity. Yeah, um, I, I, I get what you mean about that in like a spoon carving because I, I like carving wooden utensils and I've made my fair share of spoons as gifts or like things yeah. to use in the kitchen. And it's really cool to have something that you can like make and be like, oh, I, I made this and I'm going to use it. Yeah, and I, I don't know about you, but I find myself uh, like touching the work a lot um, and like feeling the, the surfaces a lot. And I find that is a huge hugely enjoyable part of the making process absolutely of just like feeling the shape i don't know how you could make like sculpture without doing that yeah i'm always surprised when i see potters making objects without spending a lot of time touching them and like feeling the like discontinuities in the curves um is he all right yeah. Yeah. Sorry, uh, we got a cat on the table off <laughs> off camera. I guess if you're listening, there's no camera, but 
she's she's a, a she's exploring one. oh yeah yeah you know, maybe she'll say hi i'm just yeah. worried about my coffee cup and that's well, like yeah so i was kilter. like heard the the tinging noise and i was like is this about to be a disaster no nope. it's all right done the inspection excellent but um, um sorry where were we pottery right t- yeah like t- touching the work and like um i i often do this with with people's work of like you can feel that there's problems with the surfaces with your fingers much more than you can see them and so when i'm making i spend a lot of time just running my hands over every single bit of the surface and like reworking it like countless times and that's partly why some of my pieces take like 20 plus hours per piece which is like it's an inordinate amount of time for pottery because usually um usually you are trying to make as many mugs as you can within the day and you're trying to you know people churn out like 50 mugs in a day that would be a real good productive day and i'm sitting here thinking like if i can make one of these works in a fortnight i will have done a good job like um no fair um so you're a bit of a perfectionist aren't you i uh, i don't i don't think so i don't know i don't know why i've ended up doing this with with the ceramics it's really odd because i'm usually not a very patient person but um i i think with the ceramics i have like quite a clear idea of what i want to achieve and it's not perfection but like it's quite particular um and so and then it just takes that long like it just takes i suppose i could go quickly but like i don't know it's fun i i'm not here to try and like make as many weird pots as i can in a week i'm here to like make the right pot you know and and enjoy it yeah well good for you yeah that's that's uh i don't know i get it yeah and i'm I'm really looking forward to having a space again yeah it's amazing to have a space to create stuff it's yeah it's it's so good at the moment it's like i can use the kitchen table for a little bit but uh if you're making pots that take like weeks that's kind of not very social to have like messy ceramics on the table for for weeks and yeah. not very hygienic to be honest either but um, you got your yeah. your funny dust everywhere yeah exactly you have to be quite careful yeah yeah it's it's uh it's cool well i'm looking forward to seeing what you make when you have your whole space you know That'll yeah be well, i'm cool. looking forward to getting back to the wheel particularly yeah because it's, it's so much fun because you've got to i mean like yeah you can do ceramics without a wheel and it's good fun but like the, the wheel is like it's quite a lot easier to make stuff quickly and it's very much more of a flow activity. You know, you're just doing, it's just you and the wheel. And like, there's no forgiveness to like stop paying attention for a second. Um, and so it's a bit like using some power tools, I guess. Um, like, I don't know if you have a wood turned, but like, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say it's, uh, it's not quite as like vital as wood turning where like you are in a real trouble if you catch the tool, but it's, you can ruin the pot, right? So it's less like, terrifying but the same amount of tension is needed yeah you're not going to get kicked back and like a chisel thrown at you but you can yeah, uh... which is nice it's nice to have the stakes a bit lower <laughs> yeah but it's still you have to be very careful about what you're doing and and that demands a sort of attention that is so much fun yeah like it, it's, it's it's like skiing or any of the like activities where you just have to be paying attention or you're messed up very quickly yeah i love those absolutely um are there any other forms of art that you practice or are you mostly a pottery guy has that been your lane it's been my lane of late but i mean when it when i can't make pottery i tend to 
start to fall back to making digital um like pieces of like uh 3d modeling and like bringing together a scene um i've done a lot of that since we moved because i've not had access to the studio um and so whenever i'm feeling a little bit creative but not like spending 20 hours carving a piece of clay um i tend to just like throw together some assets in a sort of uh vignette of like vibes and and try and like tell a little story in like some sort of scene cool um, you'll you'll have to show me one later yeah that would be neat yeah they they they're fun i mean they're not they're just sort of sketches basically and and like i i really like where 3D art is at the moment in that you can sort of throw together sketches. You're not fighting the tools to the extent that like it takes weeks and weeks just to like model a nice looking tent. You can just go and like someone will have 3D scanned a tent and like if it's 40 pixels high in your render, it doesn't matter if it's a good tent or not. Like it's a, it looks like a tent. And so you're, you're kind of there. Um, and so then you can focus on like, okay, I want the composition to look like this. This is the kind of color themes that I want. Like, this is the story I want to be telling. Much more like you would be sketching or, or painting rather than like, okay, I'm going to need a little can to have on this table. Otherwise, it's going to look empty. Oh, God. Like, <laughs> how am I going to model a can? This is awful. Uh, instead, it's just like, oh, yeah, drag and drop a can. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That's 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 uh, really interesting. I've never... No, I've never even like thought about sketching using digital technology. Yeah, it's you need to have invested a, a really obnoxious amount of time first, I think. In in just like knowing the software and, yeah. and the tools. Yeah, I, so like I, I use Blender, which is is such a good piece of software. But like, in order to get where I am with it, I have tried to learn it three times and and drew, like stopped because it was too painful and then i did like a, a art video piece for a university for like a competition um which was like a like make an art a art video about the college um so i i did that and it was like this surreal take on it uh, of like a weird dream that you were having in the college it was quite kind of fun to put together um and that really forced me to because i had like a deadline and a deliverable that i was trying to put together and like it really helped me actually do the final bit of learning and go through that pain and then since then i have enough familiarity that like i can get something i can do some stuff in it and then learning from that point on is so much easier but the initial like ass kicking is really sad it, it it's quite the skill curve then. Yeah. I, I guess with a lot of things, right? Like you just have this initial phase of like being absolutely destroyed by like not knowing anything. And then as soon as you're up a little bit, then it becomes a little bit easier because you got the basics down. Yeah. I've noticed that with bringing new people climbing funny enough. Yeah. 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 I don't, Some people just take to it though, don't they? They do. Like, like obnoxiously well yeah like cody shout like, out to that guy yeah i just <laughs> when he said he'd been climbing when we, when we first met like he'd been climbing for like next to no time i think it was like his ninth or tenth session uh, when we just met. unbelievable <laughs> unbelievable i had a friend who i took along who, who i ended up like making a climbing wall for he was he was really into it and he was also what he had was no fear 
he was very strong because he'd been doing like powerlifting at university or something. But he had no fear, just like none at all, no sense of like self-preservation. And that will make you a good climber so much more than like my being terrified, but like spending years working on technique or whatever. Yeah, I feel like you kind of need it all to be great. But to be good, you need something, that's for sure. But it's a hell of a kickstart. Yeah. To come in like just not being scared. I think Cody has some of that, right? Like, I, I think so. Yeah, he's pretty fearless. But also he's just very good. Yeah, I'm, I'm beyond impressed. Yeah. It's very cool. Shout out. It's very cool. Yeah, if big, you're watching, big listening. Big to <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, speaking of climbing, uh, I I don't know. This is a it's a pretty neat sport, isn't it? It's it's pretty great. I've not done basically any recently. Really? Yeah. Well, it's like winter season, so I'm um, doing a very stereotypical thing of skiing as much as I can. Good for you. Yeah, I. That's kind of why we moved here, partly, and and you know, the, the mountains are right there. I don't yeah. know if you've noticed. They're like right there. It's fantastic. It's uh, great. I can always tell where North is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unless you get confused with Mount Baker. It's pretty far. It's I don't pretty know. Far. It's I've been here far. long enough. Yeah, yeah, you can probably tell. It's the one with the ski run on it. That's the North one. Yeah. But, um, shit. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and I like injured my knees skiing slightly. And so that's not cut into the skiing, but it has cut into the climbing because heel hooks. Yeah. So important move isn't it it's just a bit just any pulling with the feet uh they're a bit better now but like was was quite uncomfortable so didn't you drop a baking tin on your i did also toe? drop a baking <laughs> my toe. <laughs> and that took me out for like two weeks because i couldn't put on shoes <laughs> <laughs> it's a silly sport it is so injury prone yeah I, I feel like every month something comes up it it, it is like that sometimes well now that now that you've mentioned skiing, we can come back to climbing because uh-huh. I feel like maybe skiing's a bit more recent in your mind. I think it's more, yeah, it's more. I'm in the I'm in the zone of skiing, although I'm going to have to put that away pretty soon because it's coming to the end of the season. Do you find when the season wraps up, are you like, man, I'm really excited to stop skiing and start climbing again, or are you like, I just want to keep skiing? I am so mad that the snow is bad now. Oh, <laughs> so Fair mad! Enough. It's just like uh, I don't know because we have this this. Uh, this four day skiing in Whistler with my my partner's dad, which was super good. It was so, it was it was so good, and uh, and then I came back and the snow was good, right? Because it's Whistler, the snow's still good and it will be this whole month, basically. And then I come back and it's it's switched from being decent, maybe getting a little bit warm in the late afternoon to like it's now solidly spring conditions the whole time. It's just slush. You're just surfing slush. And so I went went from like skiing like big mountain lines like uh, and we had some fresh snow, like just just some big skiing to like now hardly being able to get down stuff because it's just like slush and hard. And and I, I was skiing down. Um, I, I went on on the um, the Ravens lifts for the first time. They'd opened up all of the and like I was skiing one of the double blacks um, uh, like not a difficult part and like the patrol skied past me and then one of them like took a massive fall and i'm like if patrol is falling it's not a good sign is it <laughs> no definitely not um did you treat did you attain your goal of doing the double blacks at whistler this year i did not no 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 we just we just didn't i don't know um we did what was marked as a double black 
uh, drop into to the Whistler Bowl, uh, which but not successfully. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you made it down, right? Yeah, I mean the thing is that like it was only the first day we were skiing without my girlfriend, and she is keen to not get injured this season and also just generally a bit more risk averse than i am and so as soon as she was there we weren't going to ski some like really big lines that couldn't just be shortcutted or like taken an easy way out and so you know like one could drop in like some of the stuff at harmony but uh like the diamond bowl and stuff wasn't really stuff that we could ski this season so fair enough there's always next year there's always and and i'd also just bought new boots and uh it's taking a little bit of time to get used to them Um, fair enough yeah fair enough so but i I was just it was so good to go skiing and like particularly to ski with my girlfriend's dad who's like been skiing since he was a a child and he's like 70 now so he is an exceptionally good skier and just very inspiring to ski with someone that good yeah, my one of my friends' dads is like that, and it's uh, very impressive to see someone just like cruise down the most outrageous shit, and just with so much style. Yeah, you know, it just I I I don't know how much of it is like the style that you have to do to ski on straight skis, like that they just learn so much swag in their skiing, but they have so much style; it's ridiculous, and I I I just unendingly envious of people who can ski that well when you're 70 people will be thinking that of you i'm sure i hope so oh yeah so that would be a life that's a life goal (laughs) for people to be like damn that guy can ski yeah 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 i i bet you'll get there we'll see i just need to spend some time on the mountain it's sort of you have been haven't you yeah but i mean i only learned to ski five years ago yeah so you got a long time so i've got yeah i've got a lot of time to catch up for sure um for sure That's cool though. It's it's great. I wish I could have gone up more, but um, I don't know. It's it's been a busy winter. Yeah, lots of school and and uh, spending all of my money on musical instruments other <laughs> than ski passes. <laughs> yeah, I just spent all of my money on skiing stuff. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping like no bank ever tries to look at the money I've spent to see whether or not they can let me buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> just be like, what? Well, where's all this money gone? I just be like, well, I bought some skis. Yeah, and then the rest of the money, I bought some boots. And the rest, yeah, didn't have a season pass, so things got quite expensive. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it's certainly not an accessible sport, is it, really? No, by no means. But um, I don't know, up until recently, I've been really blessed in being young and not having to pay full price for season's passes. Ah, yeah, that that thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's like... um, uh, what's the word like uh i don't know it's it's like a big barrier now just like yeah it's prohibitive yeah that's the word that's yeah prohibitive um, very prohibitive oh for sure yeah and you have to really know that you're going to use them yeah like i can't even drive so getting that a does, season's yeah. pass is like am i even gonna go more than like three times this year probably not right and like i guess grouse is relatively accessible but then what are you gonna ski at grouse uh, that's much. i'm throwing so much shade right there <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> it's gross actually i i like the olympic lift i haven't been it's, in so long i literally don't even know yeah i think like to be honest cyprus it's just sky chair for me i'm not i'm not bothered with the others uh and so you know it's that or the olympic chair at, at grouse good good chairs in the city two but, out of like many 
true but like if you want easily accessible like good lines there's not a huge variety yeah i mean skychair was fun i really enjoyed skiing that with you when we went it's a, it's a great one it's a really good chair yeah and that run is just there's so much to choose and totally so much to do it's a good one yeah because like the week after or maybe like two weeks after i i spent like nine hours on the mountain skiing just that lift completely ridiculous it's a good day it was so such a good day yeah i'm I'm glad to hear it yeah <laughs> i just like just like the loner i am just skiing for the whole day but we watched the sunset from the top of sky chair and that that is really magical yeah like seeing over how sound and like really puts ones in one's place really yeah it's a it's a lovely sport and a great place to like be in the wilderness on a mountain in the winter yeah i mean it's just like what luck truly yeah we are very lucky here yeah. in vancouver 100 percent. would you ever get into a uh, backcountry skiing I, I mean i've got we do a little bit yeah yeah the problem is i'm i'm like i'm quite unfit and i'm terrible at like suffer fest and uh a lot of the backcountry access here involves a lot of suffer fest because you have to go up through the trees for the first like two hours and by then i'm usually kind of done and then so then you have like a bad two hours up and then it's sort of time to turn around or maybe you get an extra hour to like ski some meadows or something and then you've got to ski down through the trees and like if the conditions are good that's fine but if the conditions are terrible like that is a horrible ski we did one at cyprus where it was just like it it was a what we must have gone up like a thousand meters like quite a long tour and then there is no alpine at cyprus so you're always in the trees there's like a little hillside spot a bit like the top of sky chair right like there is a little bit above the trees but then your entire ski down is in the trees and it was like bulletproof ice and crust and so we side slipped for like an hour and a half just side slipped that honestly sounds awful. It was so bad. <laughs> it was so much not fun. That's the only tour we've done this year. But last year we did quite a lot because we had we had a season's Whistler pass, um, a season's pass at Whistler, and uh, there's a lot of backcountry that's accessible, like from the resort. Um, that's cool. really good. Yeah. So, do you need the pass to do backcountry at Whistler? You can get like a backcountry access pass, but it's still actually quite a lot of money i believe it yeah nothing Um, there is cheap yeah nothing there is cheap absolutely not um uh, but there's also there's some really good touring off um off uh squamish area yeah as um, well i i did a hike there as well as one of my dad's friends lives i think on the mountain that you're thinking of right yeah yeah Yeah, the elfin lakes area is really really nice yeah it's a it's a beautiful spot yeah so that's last year we did a lot of our touring there because we were new to the backcountry, so we were just sort of getting our feet wet. Um, and it's such an easy get in. And then you're in meadows and it's all very like low avi brisk and yeah. low consequence terrain. It's a beautiful spot. And it's it's so beautiful. And you're right by Garibaldi and like what a view. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a cool spot. Like and how- just at Squamish just generally, like you really can't go wrong. Yeah, I mean you got outdoor climbing there too. Yeah. But also, you just got like possibly the most beautiful place I can think of. Yeah, pretty much. It's yeah. I really miss. We used to live like under the chief. Oh, really? Like two, three hundred meters from the chief. No way. Um, and 
like that plus being able to you know just go to the grocery store or whatever and you can see the sea and you can see how sound and you can see garibaldi and it's pretty magical it's pretty magical like i i used to like go and hang out um that we had this river like off the back of the house and then you could walk through a little bit of forest and then there was a path and then there was like a, a glacial runoff stream um with like huge granite boulders and i used to just go and hang out there quite a lot because it was just so idyllic sounds like a magical little spot it was so good and then i did some like fires to burn some stuff out of pottery and just did a load of photography of my pottery there and it's just oh i saw those yeah that's really cool i mean the water was like super clear but like so cold and um it's just such a magical place to like relate your work to yeah and it was really cool um i was meaning to ask this when we were talking about pottery but um how do you fire your pottery like where do you do that do you have a space at home to do it or do you get it done at a studio no i i have a friend i made through i've literally no idea i think i messaged him randomly i can't can't remember how we met um i did a lot of this when we moved and i still do it a bit of just like i realized that as an adult it's so hard to make friends and so you have to be a bit obnoxious you have to just like be a bit over the top in like kind of saying like do you want to be my friend to like random other adults and it feels very odd like coming from not having done that for years and i think climbing's a super easy environment to do that in because you kind of there's so much camaraderie and like it's very people are very open to like having a chat depending on the gym but like generally that's a big part of bouldering is like being friends with people and like turning those super casual friendships of like you happen to climb on wednesdays with someone to like hey we should go and get a drink sometime it's like it's a little bit tricky here um because there's like less of a pub culture but it's at least there's the bones of a friendship there where you may have seen someone like several times but with the pottery stuff like with the exception of the guild that i'm part of like um i just had to be like hey I'm also a ceramics person. How are you doing? I like your work. And and that's like, and then some people are not very responsive to that. And then some people I've sort of made friends with from it. And, um, and then eventually, like, I don't know, he was setting up his studio and like, I went and helped him move his kiln outside and like cut some shelves up and things. And like, that's enough to, to be friends then. Uh, it's just sort of like sharing, like st- striving with someone is enough to like establish being mates. So shout out to Dustin. He's so good. He's, shout out. He's, he, uh, and he fires my pieces and he's, he's, he's great. I mean, that's quite the help if you're a potter, isn't it? That's oh like yeah. A- yeah. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so, so good. Um, and, and just generally, he's just a really lovely guy. Cool. Um, shout out. Yeah. Nice. Glad to hear it. Yeah. It's, great. Uh, it's awesome to have connections like that, isn't it? Yeah. And I think like it's it's about trying to not just like use people, you know, just be an actually good friend rather than just be like, hey, you've got a kiln, like uh, just bum your kiln space from you. It's just like, no, okay. Like I can slightly earn this by like doing some stuff that I'm good at and you're less good at. I yeah. like DIY stuff I can come and help with and um, that's super cool. I like that. I, I like the like exchange of goods and services on like a barter system has a, has a great basis for friendship rather than like, 
basically anything else. I don't know. I'm a real like quality ki- time kind of guy, you know. I I do. Yeah, and so it's so it's just like you, you kind of gotta just come up with excuses for like spend random like nonsense time together. Yeah, and then you'll be friends with people. That is also my strategy. Funny enough, yeah, <laughs> it served me well. Yeah, I I, I kind of don't understand how else you would have friends but i think particularly like it's kind of harder as an adult to be like let's go and have coffee together for no reason yeah i could see that like it it still can work and like some of the art people that i've met i've like just gone and hung out with them so some of the other pottery people other and a painter as well i know um we just like have coffee occasionally and, and have a chat but like it's a big lift particularly you've never met someone before like this guy i just literally met him on instagram like by messaging and so like it's a huge lift to be like do you want to go and have coffee like who's gonna say yes to that but i was like i can come and help you make some shelves like yeah that's cool that's quite the offer too yeah well actually i (laughs) i got like Lowe's or whatever to cut them for me (laughs) because like a whole sheet of fly is really hard to cut up yeah, it's so it's like work. I, I'll pay like four bucks to to have that work done for me, like super straight cuts and being able to get them in the car. I was like, that's a no brainer. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, um, but I did some sanding. I I did something. I did some sanding. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's funny. I've never like thought about it like that, but I would absolutely agree on the whole like spending quality time with people and bartering stuff. It's just like I don't know, very. I don't know how else I would make friends. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how else. But, like, it's kind of odd to start life with no network again. Like, s- start from scratch. Yeah, well, that must be uh, uh, really difficult because you came from a whole other country. Yeah. Across the pond. Across the pond. <laughs> <laughs> from old Cambridge Town. I'll yeah. Tell you a story about that. Yeah. No, so, yeah. So, I, I moved, for, you know, from from Cambridge where I'd lived my entire life. Like me and my family, uh, my parents moved there. Well, my mom moved to Cambridge to do her undergraduate degree and never left in like the seventies. And I think same with my dad, not to do undergraduate, but like had moved to Cambridge around that time. And, um, and then I grew up like living in the same house and I went to school in the city and I went to university in the city. And then I got a job in the city. Like, quite a small town it's like a hundred thousand people it's about the same size as burnaby i guess it's probably smaller than burnaby huh um and it's i mean it punches way above its weight right because it's like a very big university and so there's a lot of culture for that size of place and just generally like the uk has a more concentrated amount of culture in it anyway because we stole it from everyone um <laughs> You could say that. Yeah, I mean, like, for instance, I lived right next to a museum that had, like, a lot of artifacts. Um, and they, they weren't our artifacts. And, but, you know, it's good. You can go and see them, at least. Um, I hope someday, you know, they start giving them back. They've been doing a little bit of that, but really not very much. But um, so I lived, I lived in Cambridge for, for all that time. And, and my, my girlfriend was finishing up her PhD. And uh, she was starting talking to moving to some, like, really not very nice towns in the UK. And I... I Cambridge is like a very safe and like quite affluent town and it has a lot of culture and the students are all great fun and like so there's there's plays and stuff 
punches way above its way. It's not, still not a big city, but like you're also right next to London if you're really keen on that sort of stuff. Um, and she started talking about moving to some towns that I didn't have so much love for uh, and would really prefer not to. Or an area of the country that is almost exactly the same as Cambridge, but like where my family doesn't live. So it's like, this is nonsense. Um, we should look at moving somewhere else. And it was about coming out of COVID at that time or like the second lockdown. And we were getting really like, it would be nice to be outside right now kind of vibes. And like, it would particularly be nice to be able to go skiing this winter and we couldn't because it was COVID. And so we're like, we should move somewhere. And uh, there's a big old process of like checking off countries that didn't fit our needs. And then um, she, she, she has Canadian citizenship because her mom is, is from Quebec. Oh. And so Canada stood out pretty far and it's a good one. It's it, it's definitely like of the English speaking countries of which that was more or less my main condition. It certainly stands out. And particularly like Vancouver is just so beautiful and like so much outdoors stuff. Yeah. It's odd. I feel like I take it for granted because I've been here my whole life. Yeah. I it's kind of hard not to a little bit. I, I like at Christmas, around Christmas when it was snowing, I, I went up to my office tower, which is like a, a pretty horrible office, but it is also on the 21st floor in, in Metro Town. And I took a load of pictures of the snow. And like, obviously it's an absolutely astonishing view from the 21st floor in Metro Town. Like you can see everything and and snow lying all over the city. And I posted them to like our, our work chat that has people from like the bay area and just all over the u.s mainly uh and people were like why don't you ever want to go into the office if it's so beautiful and i'm just like that's just it's just vancouver's like that just like you're on the sky train it's gonna look beautiful you're like crossing one of the bridges you're gonna get a view of mount baker and it's gonna look beautiful um and you do get a bit blasé about it yeah but, but it hasn't soaked in for me yet i don't think like it takes a few years i think yeah i mean uh I don't think I've had years where it hasn't been like that. So, yeah, but it's it's cool. Every once in a while, I'll think about it and be like, "Wow, I'm very yeah. lucky." Was Cambridge, where I grew up, was like one of the flattest places in the entire world. I get genuinely Ge- like like Cambridge itself has some lumps, but like <laughs> I think the uh, the highest place in the county that I grew up, like the the area, um, is the edge of the county, like the county line. There's a road that is like 60 meters above sea level. And that's the highest point. That's crazy. We have like the hill and it's like 40 meters high. <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> that's insane. Yeah. I, I can like hardly picture it. Yeah. I think it would be hard to find somewhere as flat in the lower mainland. <laughs> I, I would think so. I guess, I guess like Richmond. Yeah. Is, Richmond's is flat. pretty flat. It's pretty flat. But I mean, like, um, driving around, sometimes you'll just, like, go down a huge hill and then up another one or something. Yeah. Yeah, so we had none of that. It was much easier to cycle, that's for sure. But yeah, a lot less, you know, things. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the flat cycling experience. Mm. I've got a lot of family in France and um, a lot. Uh, my granddad, uh, before he passed away, and my auntie and my uncle, they have places on this little island called Ile de l'Eron. It's a... Uh, a tiny island off the, the coast of france and Beautiful. it is flat yeah it's like there's a hill 
or two. You can like go to the ocean. It's it's very nice though, and it's it's like you could bike anywhere in an hour or two. I think it's just flat. The bit that I miss about the flatness is like the rolling hills, like the rolling fields that we don't seem to have here. Of like in in large parts of the UK, there's like there's not hills, but like there's undulations in the ground. So like field to field, you'll be going up and down like twenty meters, and so it's just enough to keep it all interesting that you have like a little downhill, a little uphill. And, like, you can't see forever when you're at the top of them because there's another undulation. It's a very picturesque view, too. Oh, yeah, it's very, like, it's very um, bucolic, I think is the <laughs> the term. Could you define bucolic? Oh, God. Uh, it's, it's like, of the countryside, like, wholesome countryside vibes, I guess, would be the... The, the the modern slang for that's, it. that's such a great word yeah it's it's often used to describe classical music weirdly um that uh certain composers will make very bucolic sounding uh tunes huh yeah neat yeah um whoa <laughs> that's so that's so funny yeah that's a good word so how how do you find it different being here in Canada versus being in, in the uh, UK? Like, are there things that you really miss? Uh, are there things that you, like, didn't think you would like here or things that you don't like that you wouldn't expect? I miss, like, compact cities more than most anything else. Really? Yeah, because, you know, like, Cambridge being quite a small city but also like shaped like a town it felt like a town we cycled and walked almost everywhere like i had a car but like most people didn't it just happened that i had parking space and like why not have a car to like go to see my parents particularly because they lived out out of the town by quite a way um and so like if you wanted to go to i don't know to the climbing wall i would cycle like six minutes to go climbing or like I want to go to like the mall in the town center or whatever. That's like a four minute cycle or like, I want to go and get like the best cup of coffee in the entire town. That's a four minute walk, like haircut, four minute walk, you know, that sounds awesome. It was so good. Like (laughs) it, it, it's something that I just like, it's, it's, I have a lot of like a lot of, sadness about how american cities have been built that that they just don't have this and like it's so much it's so liberating compared to like constantly being stuck needing to drive places and like i get a little bit of taste in that because my girlfriend takes the car for the day when she goes to work and so like i'm just stuck home and so if i need to like go to a doctor's appointment i've either got to cycle for 20 minutes um on like roads that are not great for cycling or I've got to like go and hire a car or like get a taxi or something. And yeah. I, I do miss just walking places and particularly the ability then to drink. <laughs> Reasonable. It's like, it's a thing in the UK. You all go to the pub and you get a little bit pissed and you, you sort of stagger home or like cycle a little bit dangerously home. It doesn't matter because it's like 12 and no one's around like midnight. There's no cars. So it doesn't matter. It's just like everybody getting a little bit pissed. And so when I went home at Christmas and saw a load of people, I was in the town center quite a lot. And like, you know, walking to the restaurant 
you know everybody's out walking uh to get places and like cycling and and it's just lovely it's really really nice and and it's something that i guess if you live right in the downtown core of vancouver you get but but then there aren't like small businesses right in the core of downtown vancouver it's all like tourist trap places yeah the uh, the neighborhood i'm in um for people who don't know me like the three people that watch this now uh, <laughs> um the commercial drive area is really like nice like that um there's a whole like l- street of just like stores small businesses restaurants grocery stores and you can get pretty much everything you need there there's like two musical instrument stores and yeah i i definitely get the impression that that's like one of the places where that is feasible yeah th- one of the only ones i can really think of here but I even guess. then it's like it's divided by a huge like six lane road or something isn't it um there is broadway running through it yeah and then, like you got across victoria which kind of sucks but it's not it's not that bad yeah but it's like all the strodes it's the stro it's the strodes and like the like the dominance of of cars over pedestrians that but i i I just don't know how you'd fix it that's the real the thing that bums me out yeah i always think about how tiny the city would be if houses were closer together or like you just had another row of houses where like half the roads were you could fit all of vancouver in such a small space yeah or like a, a bigger area with some apartment buildings yeah not not even like big apartment buildings but like four-story apartment buildings it's a very like splayed out place for sure and the problem is it like breeds itself right like when you have a car dependent infrastructure everyone therefore has to have a car like it's pretty hard to live in vancouver without a car I mean, you're doing it right now, but like, I imagine there's quite a lot of time where you're like, this sucks. I, w- yeah. I wish I had a car right now. Um, but when everybody has to have a car and everyone is driving to get everywhere, you have to have lots of roads because they need spaces to go and you got to have like lots of parking. And then if you're going to have all of that space dedicated to cars and stuff, then you might as well have bigger houses or whatever. Cause like if you built an apartment building, where would the cars go? And so it's sort of building for the cars exactly yeah and it's sort of trap 22 um and then people get very used to that feeling of of like what the developments are like yeah well like they get used to the vancouver special um and then when you try and disrupt that and build like a walkable district people are a lot more resistant to it than they really ought to be yeah what do you think there's hope in the future for a city like this i think so and i'm i'm like of all of the places in north america that i think have a prospect i think vancouver is generally not a million miles away because their public the public transport is already very good by north american standards um like and the the expansion of skytrain is Maybe not as aggressive as I think it needs to be, but like it, it, they're clearly adding SkyTrain to like where there should be SkyTrain, right? Like they're they're bordering more 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 of the cities onto it, you know, like Poco and and Surrey and Langley coming on, um, but also they're planning this this development along Forty Nine and Forty First eventually. Oh, um, really? To build another like a ring of SkyTrain in uh, Vancouver Burnaby. Cool. And like that will be huge. Yeah. Like, well, they're doing Broadway too, right? 
Right. Like they're doing a lot of, they are doing a lot of SkyTrain development and they are gradually making the zoning possible to build higher, um, higher density developments. I think it's a lot of baggage, right? To have all of this housing, this low density housing, and it's not very easy to fix because the roads are in the wrong place to build bigger developments. Yeah. You need less, less roads and you need big plots of land to build big blocks of flats with underground parking and some community gardens associated with them, which is how people should be building the higher density housing. Probably, yeah. And so we're building like piecemeal duplexes or like fourplexes and they're not a very, they're not a very nice building to live in, um, but they're also not quite high enough density to have a really vibrant urban core somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, it kind of doesn't resolve the problem. It's just like a bigger house. Yeah, it, like it, it's probably better. Yeah, but, I would imagine. But like, it's not, it's not what you would choose in any, if you were planning anything. Yeah. And I think like that is the issue with, with Vancouver and almost all of North America is that what there is here is just somewhat fundamentally incompatible with what one would need to build. And and a lot of the issue that complicates that is people can't build what they think would actually be good. They have to build what's in zoning. Right. And I, I have a, like a lot of... I, I, I knew zoning was bad coming like before moving here and was like, oh, North America, like with their zoning, what are they doing? Um, but it's so obviously stupid that it really makes me mad. I, I just don't understand how you could have... You've come to a, a relatively undeveloped area of land as an invader and you're like, okay, having learned everything that we have from Europe cities and the issues with Europe cities, I know what would fix this all. A huge grid. <laughs> Massive grid. It's going to solve all of our problems with European cities that are like relatively nice and then to just stick with it and be like you know what else you know another problem that we have with europe is that people can start businesses where they think it would be good what the hell's that or they could build the houses that they think they want to build like no let's make us like let's make a prescriptive planning system where there's no way that a small business can start somewhere where like there's foot traffic or like there's no way that um if you can persuade some people that it would be really good to build a block of flats here that they should be able to it's weird isn't it it's real and like particularly i uh, like it's not part of the like canadian psyche that freedom is a big part but like america talks a lot in their national identity about freedom and yet so many of the like things like that are just mad like in the uk my parents and I often talked very idly, like not seriously, about turning one of the rooms in our house into a into a restaurant. It used to be a, a post office and like it could probably theoretically work as a restaurant. So while I was really into cooking as like a teenager, it wasn't a serious thing, but like that would be possible. We would just have to like apply for a permit to like for the food safety part of it. We wouldn't have to like get permission. It would just be like, are we technically able to serve food safely and like do we have the necessary fire suppression like that's it that's the only requirement yeah uh we were we were talking earlier about how um 
like the hive, the place that we climb. It's a, mm. it's a bouldering gym for the uninitiated, the unindoctrinated. Uh, yeah, join us. Yeah, it's good fun. Anyway, you were saying that it's crazy they don't have a coffee shop. I was, I, I never even thought about it. Um, yeah, I, I like, I, I don't think I've ever been to a UK climbing uh, center or like a. Uh, I haven't climbed in Europe, but like they also all have nice coffee shops attached to the climbing. Yeah. Because like obviously you want a cup of coffee. When you climb, or like a piece of cake. Yeah, I noticed that too. Like I've been climbing in um, mm-hmm. a few places in France and gyms, and I went to London and climbed in a few gyms there as well. And it's, it's, you, you get coffee when you climb. It's just like right there. Yeah, and it like it increases the revenue of the climbing wall quite substantially. Yeah. Because, um, and particularly like my friends uh, started a, a little climbing wall in like a small town in what used to be an antique shop, like a small, uh, not antique shop, like a vintage shop, like a small shop. Um, and he said like a good chunk of their revenue, like a third is from the cafe. Really? Because they charge hmm, like $12 to climb. And then... I guess half half the customers or more buy like a cake and a coffee and that's another, you know, $7 or something of a revenue and then the, it adds up. Yeah, I'd imagine. And like it's good margins on on that compared to like once you've got people in the space. And so like it's definitely not the businesses deciding that they can't have a co- – like they don't want a coffee shop. It's not like, oh, we'd have to pay our staff like a dollar more an hour because <laughs> we want people who can press a button on a coffee machine. Um, it's because they can't and it's just like it's so mad to me that you would let a climbing gym or like next to one of the wall, the wall that we generally go to is like a huge arcade thing with like games and stuff and they can't serve food or drink I think you can buy like a hot dog there oh okay you can <laughs> but like in the uk that would be like a big drinking sp- like you'd have beers right you'd have like lots of beers and you'd mostly go there as an adult to get a little bit sozzled and play pool or something yeah. but like they're hamstrung by that that they can't and like it, it just it just makes no sense yeah i can thinking about it makes no sense to me i don't understand why it would be the way it is here do you have an idea as to why a government or like a uh, an authoritarian body would want a city to be run like that? So I think a lot of it is a backlash against, um, maybe, is a backlash against the like nepotistically based planning that you get in the UK and places and France. That like a lot of them, if you know the people on the council you're more likely to get your, like, god-awful extension greenlit than if you are someone who the council doesn't really like. Huh. Like, if if you're generally disliked by the local residents, they'll, like, put together a petition to stop you, and, and that's quite effective. Really? Yeah. And particularly in, like, smaller villages where, like, you'll know the person who's on the planning council. Like, my dad was on the planning council for a while. Um, and like had had the say over planning developments and like I don't think that's necessarily perfect as a system and I like I like the basis of having zoning there to have like a everybody is equal in the eye of the law type basis but the fact that it's so inflexible for when you can clearly show that something would be good for the community or just just not an insane idea 
like the fact that that is completely unopened to you unless you put an application to change zoning which is like a huge process here um is is an overreaction i think and like in some ways i think that people who are liked in the local community should have more leeway actually i think it's reasonable that if you're like not hated by everyone in your local community that you should be able to like build your house in a way that might be slightly unacceptable to other people because it won't like people will probably feel better about it it's, it's a it's a controversial take i think but like no i can see that um the other thing is on the flip side of that if you're hated by everybody maybe you shouldn't get to run free in the town either. exactly yeah like particularly you know we had some developments where like the the big landowner whatever wanted to build like a load of new houses on the top of the hill where like really didn't make much sense and like that got a lot of pushback mostly because people didn't really like him um and i i think that's good you know like it it is a motivation to be nice to people and also like to be honest if you're more liked by people you probably understand what the community needs a bit more and like possibly a little bit more altruistic about your things and like that might help stop some like stone stone-hearted capitalists coming in and like building a factory in the middle of your little town you know because they'd be like no we don't actually like you and and i think the self-determination of like having a group of local people decide what is going to be added to a place is kind of nice as well like the self-governance yeah it gives a bit more power to the people yeah and to decide on a like an individual basis is maybe a bit onerous but also like quite nice i don't know they both have their give and takes right i i think so but i i do think that like strict zoning is an over overcorrection. yeah well i guess the other thing too is people that would be able to get rezoning applications are probably going to be like big companies well that's the thing right like it's 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 developers and it's people who have enough money to pay some lawyers and to petition the council in like a a non-official capacity rather than uh a you know 20 something year old who's managed to scrounge together thirty thousand dollars to start a cafe in a place where they know lots of people walk to work every day like that's the sort of businesses i think would be really nice to have is little tiny businesses scattered around residential areas because they give so much flavor to a place yeah, there's not enough of those. And, and like, you can't have any real barrier to starting those if you want them to start because they're already so delicate because they're most likely to fail, right? Like, they, they're pretty low-margin businesses. You need, like, they're started usually by people who don't have a huge amount of capital behind them. Like, it's not like they're dropping a, a cheeky million down to start a, a one-person cafe that, like might serve a few hundred coffees a day yeah i mean especially if it's in like a little residential nook like it's not going to be like people all around on like a big commercial street yeah and some of my favorite places in the uk are like that you know they started in basically someone's front front room yeah uh it makes me think of this little bakery on the island like uh, across the street from my grandpa's house there's this like house and the first floor is a bakery yeah and there's just like this old couple that just makes fresh like baguette and and croissants every day and you just you walk like 10 meters and you're at a 
homemade bakery. Yeah, and, so and nice. Like that very specifically is one of the things I miss most about the UK. I think yeah. is I used to live like seventy steps. I think my dad reckoned away from like one of the best bakeries I've ever been to. Like even when you count in France and stuff, um, and just being right next to that is just so so good. Yeah. What's she doing? I don't know. Cat's wreaking havoc in the room. Absolutely wreaking havoc. She was biting my foot earlier. <laughs> Quite the little munchkin. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I can I can see that. Europe's a cool place, though. I'm excited to go uh, traveling again. It's good. It's yeah. I think it gets you know a lot of things right. I yeah. Think, about and and I think particularly like Europe, Europe maybe less so the UK has a really nice like vibe. Sometimes. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have much experience. I'm I'm I've just a lot of trips to like France. Yeah. And, I mean uh, France I think has a really nice Yeah, I nice vibe. Paris is surprisingly disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. I I I've never returned to Paris. It's not great. After my first trip. <laughs> uh, it's not great. But I, I've been a few times to like the south south and southwest of France. Yeah, there's some amazing And it's just so amazing nice places. Yeah. But yeah. um I don't know. It's neat. Uh, uh, not, not everywhere is perfect. I guess nowhere is really perfect, is it? No. No. no otherwise, everyone would move there, and then it wouldn't be perfect anymore. It's true. There'd be too many people trying yeah. to claim a piece of that. Exactly. A bit like <laughs> what's happening in Vancouver, to be honest. Yeah. But we got a lot of empty houses. Yeah. That right. blew my mind learning about... Well, I don't know. One of my friends told me this, so it might be totally off but we've got some somewhere in the range of ten thousand empty houses according to some dude i talked to about this a while ago yeah it doesn't sound unreasonable because we so, must have like about a million houses ish yeah in the in the lower mainland that's so many so much space yeah it's hard to disambiguate because almost certainly yes but then there's this thing that like naturally you have about one percent of the houses empty because between tenants you might have a month and that would be a, a reasonably healthy thing for a housing stock to have that's true um i'm sure there's loads of how and there's loads of like problems with investment buying but i'm not sure how many of those are actually left empty um I, oh oh god that was my camera bag oh i'm sorry camera it's okay. It's a sturdy bag. It'll survive. <laughs> <laughs> I was just this afraid is, it was open and one of my lenses sure, would come I'm not sure this out. is the bit of having cats that I'm looking forward to. Uh, you just have to not do what I did in this room and you'll have a great time. Okay. Cats are lovely. Yeah, unfortunately, this is exactly what I would do with a room. Just any any <laughs> any particular room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is just my vibe very much. Um, so it's it's going to be it's going to be a disaster. But They're, they're lovely. Uh, yeah, I guess after a time, though, like, all of the things that can fall, fall, and then there's no more things that can fall. Yeah. You reach a sort of state of, of equilibrium. <laughs> yeah, for sure. She's she's a funny one. My cat, Cricket, uh, is a little calico, and she she likes going in the walls. There used to be, like, an open hole in the drywall, and she would venture in there for 20 minutes at a time and then come out. <laughs> Just off adventuring. Yeah. I wish I could fit thing. in the walls. Yeah. <laughs> be a whole new world in this house probably just like so much insulation and horrible horrible things yeah I, yeah i'm not sure i'd want to be, <laughs> be an adventure at least yeah she sure. she seems to like it so i'll take it as a vote of confidence yeah yeah <laughs> a vote for the wall adventures 
<laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I poked my head in there and it's just insulation. Yeah. There's like a little tunnel that she's like carved into it, I think. Oh, but... I mean, I guess, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's a tangent. Um, speaking of the whole city planning thing, though, that's yeah. that's a little bit of what you are up to with your living. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 I guess um, I, I work for a, a company that helps city planners not hugely tangentially but slightly tangentially um by sort of giving indications about where people are going generally sort of what roads are used how much kind of stuff uh, that's the kind of broad the broad plot of it um and that's kind of interesting um but also a little bit depressing as well from like my view into not what the company does i really like what the company does otherwise we wouldn't be working there but like as it fits into a bigger whole, like what I've said about zoning and like the density and, and much less so in Canada, because there is at least like the political will, will and mechanism to do stuff like not enough, not quickly enough for my views on like how we address climate change, but like at least some stuff is getting better. But like a lot of America is set is particularly politically at the moment. Nothing can really happen. It's like stuck, like federal government is stuck and a lot of the, the states don't have any money because apart from like California um, and Texas, like a lot of the states used to have heavy industry and it's gradually going and like will have to go because a lot of them have oil money. And then their states are just left with not enough money to invest in things and with like slightly broken governments and... I just don't see how they can like make the changes that are needed to even like maintain how the cities are set up. And it is a bit depressing. <laughs> I, I found this like remarkable statistic about, um, I think it was Mississippi's DOT, which is like the department of transport. I was reading their annual report last year cause I'm a huge nerd and, uh, something like uh, uh, almost 50% of their budget comes from fuel taxes really so taxes that they get from like inefficient cars basically and so like a as cars are moving over to like hybrids and to electric and to just more efficient cars um and people are driving hopefully a little bit less or they're not really they're facing like this huge budgetary pressure to like be able to even like maintain their bridges really they just don't have any money and so like let alone increasing their bus routes or like putting in passenger trains that actually work like they're worried about can will this bridge fall over like it's 20 years past its service life but we don't have any money because we're using all of our money to repair potholes and paint lines and fix people running into barriers and stuff that's crazy it, it's and then like that is just how the entire like u.s department of transport seems to be set up um and like they get federal money occasionally but like it's in glib glibs and globs. So like the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill happened about a year ago. And like, that's a lot of money, like trillions of dollars going in infrastructure in the, in the U S but like that's released over the next five years. But like, these are people building bridges that are meant to last 50 years. Like they can't, you can't do investment based on a five year chunk of money because you need like money to run the bus service for the next 20 years, or it's pointless putting the infrastructure in place. Right, yeah, just like a, a sudden influx isn't going to sustain a country or a or a state or a city. Yeah, I mean, it fixes the bridges, right? And like, yeah. might get 
you your rail line from going out of commission, but it's not enough to build, say, a high-speed line between two major cities. Yeah. It seems like a, a an odd one, but it, it must be cool to have, like, a role in that. I think so. Yeah? I hope so. Oh, it's, it's you who gets to choose it being cool or not. We're the yeah. people that make meaning for things, aren't we? That's true. That's true. I, 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 I'm, I'm a very skeptical person about sort of the mechanisms of, of our actions and like how they actually make change. And like, I, I feel like a lot of, a lot of things one can do really end up not mattering or possibly even being like net harmful. And I'm really keen to avoid that. How so? Well, a lot of things i think particularly with climate change is like it's a very which is sort of i think maybe one of the few parts in life that i can really make a difference it may be i don't know that's i'm probably also causing a huge amount of harm at the same time so you know who knows but like there's a lot of technologies that are, are promised to help with things and like a lot of them are sort of you know meaningless in the in the great scheme of things and probably like giving them heed like giving them your endorsement is like more harm than they could ever do good really so for instance like carbon capture yeah it's almost certainly a net negative in every way because you're spending energy that makes carbon to try and capture carbon and you're just losing energy along the way right yeah like even if it did capture carbon like a lot of those plants are talking about like recapturing the same amount like in a year recapturing the same amount that like bc emits in a day kind of thing (laughs) like you have to cover like the entire lower mainland with carbon capture plants in order to make a difference and like that's obviously not going to happen whereas like you put the same capital and you put the same effort and you put the same research into offshore wind turbines or, or it's using less energy. I don't know for God's sake, uh, uh, you're going to make a much bigger difference to the world, but it's not like a cool little project that uh, oil companies can pay you to do, which is what most of the carbon capture places are. Really? Yeah. Like uh, there's one in Squamish that is mostly funded by like Shell or somebody. And so like Elna was looking at it cause she's really like very much wants to use her skills to help uh, climate change. I'm, I'm like, I would like to, but it's not a big focus for me. I, I just think it might be a good fit for what I can do for the world. Um, but she really does want to, she's really passionate about it. And like when we were up in Squamish, it was like the only job she could possibly get up there. But it was just like, well, it probably does net reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, particularly in BC because so much of the the it's so much hydropower. Um, but like, it's also endorsing effectively an oil company's like greenwashing, and so it sort of really don't want to do that. So she was the one like running this or overseeing this. Um this carbon capture project oh no no she just was like looking at it as a potential employer oh i see i see like like vetting them and like if they had been funded by anything other than an oil company (laughs) yeah she might have been interested yeah but it's so like so transparently not good yeah i i was so shocked learning about 
what had happened in like the the Gulf of Mexico oil mm. disaster, like the Deepwater Horizon or whatever that was, like all the the chemicals used and and like how little these companies care about yeah. people and the planet and it's just like milking out money when you just see it time and time again like the the train derailment in um god where was that east palestine ohio a couple of weeks ago number one quite an unexpected twist of a place name that <laughs> east palestine yeah ohio. i think it is east palestine ohio. um like a train derailed with a load of like very toxic chemicals on it yeah and the company um shout out in the most reverse way possible to the company whose train it was that derailed had been warned that their staffing and their maintenance schedules were likely to cause a major accident by their staff like a couple of months beforehand like they'd gone on strike to say like you need to staff your trains properly and you need to maintain these lines better um and a, a train derailed like fully derailed full of toxic chemicals and they set fire to it or it's got set fire to it, and they didn't put it out they just let it burn and like the entire area was like just so polluted by it and the like company offered like a million dollars for the cleanup um- <laughs> That's ridiculous. Just like, you know, the immediate area was like completely uninhabitable. And then like for miles around, people had to be evacuated because of the noxious fumes. And then they were like, oh, no, it's fine. Just go back now. Like the fire's still burning. Yes, but you can return to your homes. That's crazy. And and like in the face of that, like very few things have an impact. Yeah. And, And it's really hard, I find, to like face that of like what do you do when that is the prevailing wind in society other than like aim for a change in the way that the like system works not much really it's very hard like if if a company can get away with doing that and not have everyone involved who knew anything to do with that risk like that that risk existed end up in prison not that i'm a huge fan of prison but like what like you can't you you can't just like let that sort of crime just go unpunished right yeah absolutely it's it's shocking it's it's like that and like the opiates crisis for instance like mostly engineered by a single family uh, yeah also w- anti shout out to the the sackler family that's who, the sackler right yeah the oxycodone? Who should, yeah who should end up somewhere else agreed uh i I have very strong feelings about the the opiates crisis. Yeah. Well, me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think it's pretty hard to like be in Vancouver or like any North American city and not have quite strong feelings about the opiates crisis. Yeah, it's a it's a very surreal thing being in the most densely populated area of drug use in North America. Mm. And uh, I don't know, it's a weird one, but it's crazy to think that a company knowingly made drugs more addictive. And has admitted this in court. And then, like, pushes them yeah. to be used when they're not a more effective painkiller for long-term pain than, like, paracetamol ibuprofen. It's crazy. Um, I remember I, I was actually, after you talked to me about this, I did a bit of learning about it because I was curious. And mm. um, the, they had had the drug go onto, like, uh, off patent so other companies could manufacture it. And then as soon as that happened, they said, no, this drug is too dangerous. No one should be making it. But since we have this history of doing it, 
let's lobby the government and let us keep doing it. But no one else can because it, it, it's, it's too dangerous. It's so concentratedly evil. It's horrific. It, uh, just there, there is no other way of reading that than just pure evil, like pure greed, but at such such an irregard for human life. Yeah. That it's not even like exploitative. It's just evil. And 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 to see also to see, you know, the government and you know the local governments and everybody and and the doctors for God's sake not doing something about it is disgraceful. Like it really pisses me off. Rightfully so. And and it's it's so it's so sad to see like what is now a horrendous situation with no easy answers. You know, like. I think like lots of things could be done that would be better than what's happening, but like it's not like you could wave a magic wand and realistically fix everything by throwing a little bit more money at it. Like we have a lot of very ill people in very precarious situations, and like a, a lot of money would help, that's for sure. But like you need staffing for that, and you need like it's just it's just a ho- horrible situation. Like there's no there's no easy answers, but like to see. As far as I can see, the one pretty easy answer, which is to stop prescribing opiates like they were candy, just be not tackled at all by anywhere in North America is is just so upsetting to me. Because like you, you go to anywhere in Europe and there are drunks everywhere and there are other drug users, but the, the volume of the problem is an order of magnitude or more or less. I would imagine, yeah. And and the the people are a lot less unstably ill, which is probably horrible for them, but also horrible for everybody else. And like, just generally, is not an ideal situation. Yeah, it 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 is definitely a a, a bit of a turnoff for the downtown area. Yeah, yeah, and it and it just it makes the situation like intractably hard, and also like make people justifiably quite upset that the city has has this problem like it's it's selfish to be that upset when it's because people are suffering but like i can understand why a lot of first responders have kind of had enough of the situation and stopped being quite as compassionate as they really should be because it's so horrendous like i spoke to someone who stopped doing um uh, ambulance shifts in the city because she just couldn't take like going and helping people with overdoses and like those sorts of things continuously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in BC we have like six deaths a day overdosing out of overdose, which is insane. It's just, it's, it's just horrifying. And, and for not, none of the easy and free things to have been done, which to me is like, stop, stop the inflow of new people getting addicted from prescription opiates would be a really good start. Probably would make like a 10% at maximum bump in the problem. Like, but even that, but that it's is free. Like, it's, it's free. <laughs> it's, it's free. And, and like, uh, just good. Like it, it's just good. And also the rest of the world has proved that you can do it. Like opiates are not used routinely by clinicians in the UK, except in hospital settings. And like, very tightly controlled or like extreme pain cases but it's it's like 
maybe one and a half percent per year of the people are prescribed opiates, whereas here it's like ten percent of the population. It's it's mad, like ten percent of adults or something per year are prescribed opiates in in Canada. That's a lot of people, and like a lot of people don't have the bandwidth, I think, to not get hooked on them because. Yeah, well, ultimately, it, it preys on people that are more susceptible, people with prior issues or or uh, pain problems, people that tend to get opioids prescribed yeah. to them. Uh, or just people who are, like, in not a great, like, stable place in life yeah. for, for, like, for a lot of the times financial reasons. Yeah. And, like, therefore don't have much of a buffer if they have to stop working for a bit to kind of look after themselves. Or, like, the money to look after themselves to, like, go and have a nice day uh, or whatever, um, you know, just to get out of the city, for instance. And so, like, it just seems such an obvious thing to do that it just really, it pisses me off that, like, that is not one of the major platforms of, like, what the government is trying to do. Yeah. I, I... I totally agree. As much as I think it's people's freedoms to do what they want with their bodies, I don't think that doctors should be people giving you opioids if there's better just, alternatives. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, like if if something that killed you half the time was also an effective treatment, but there were other effective treatments. Pick the other thing. You would just do the other thing, right? Like, Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's, we don't do a lot of medical treatments that are bad for you because, like, for instance, in the UK, they've mostly stopped using diazepam for anxiety, which is like a tranquilizer. It's hugely effective. Like, I took it for a while, like, occasionally for, uh, for anxiety. And, like, it is miraculous how well it works. Is that like a benzodiazepine? Yeah. Yeah. But they are very addictive. Yeah. Because they work very well. But, like, (laughs) uh, but they've just stopped using them because the risk profile is too bad. That's just, crazy. It's worse just... than alcohol and the withdrawals can kill you. Yeah, right? But like, <laughs> it is a very effective drug for anxiety. I believe but, it. But like the UK, I think, just saw too many people getting addicted and, and was just like, nope, let's knock this on the head. Yeah, that's a hard one to kick. It's a hard one to kick. And like, it's hard as the problem like snowballs, it becomes societal level very quickly. Yeah. Well, it's just like chemical alcohol that doesn't get you as fucked up. Yeah. And and that, like, is physiologically addictive in a way that alcohol isn't. Is it? Uh, you can die from alcohol withdrawals as well. It, you can, but, like, I think it, it, like, gets your hooks into you of, like, oh, I could just have another little bit. Yeah. In a way that alcohol seems, like, statistically less addictive. Probably. I don't know. I don't, I, know I, I don't really know the mechanism for like how much of that is like physiological dependence versus like mentally would like some not feeling horrendous now, please. Thank you. Yeah. Cause like alcohol doesn't make you feel instantly not like you're about to die. Well, the other thing with well, alcohol is if you drink too much, you throw up. That is a good, it is kind of self limiting. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. Whereas yeah. with pills, you can, you can take as many as you want. When also like, with alcohol, if you drink too much, you also feel awful. Yeah. Quite quickly. I mean, I, I've never tried um, uh, anxiety pills before, but I'd imagine you don't feel great the day after if you do a bunch. I guess if you do a bunch. But if you do, like, just a normal dose. Yeah. Um, 
imagine it's fine, right? You feel actually really good because you weren't feeling anxious for several hours. And like, so you might sleep properly for the first time in quite a while. Yeah, I could see why that would be really addictive. Yeah, yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah, they're really good yeah. uh, in terms of, uh, which <laughs> I'm not a, a particularly addictive pers- personality and like how I, how I go with things, but like, uh, I 100% understand why someone would find that addictive, even if they had good self-control. Yeah. Because, like, being in the midst of, like, a big anxious episode is so all-consuming that, like, even if it just resets you to feeling normal again is a relief that is hard to, like, express. Yeah. I, I would imagine. And I think that it it really plays to, like, the... I don't know. In my mind, it's always the root of addiction is like a problem that people are trying to self-medicate. Like if you felt fine and you took a pill and you felt fine after, you Mm. wouldn't have the same pull as if you were in like this mental breakdown or this extreme anxiety and you took it. It'd be a lot bigger relief. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, it's all mental health problems for people, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, basically. And and like, obviously, I'm not saying that stopping prescribing opiates is going to fix any of that yeah 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 um but i, I just thought it's just such an obvious low-hanging fruit no i totally agree in a, in a problem that is so complex and so expensive to solve yeah i can't believe that like 10 percent of people on a yearly basis get prescribed that it's just it's like a incomprehensibly large number like i, I knew someone that got the flu and got codeine syrup <laughs> it's just like what what, what are you doing <laughs> doing i i find i find actually opiates a really unpleasant experience but um, really yeah i i had i had them prescribed once for like i had a, a moderately serious injury and like so i i got some prescribed at the hospital and and then i just felt so woozy and like crap but then i think that's because i didn't have any like anything i was trying to escape from i was just like having a regular life and then i felt like woozy and detached from it and then i'm like oh that's not very nice i i kind of want to feel awake properly because i want to like drive safely or like (laughs) walk and feel the air nicely and like be able to work productively and things but like if you actually kind of wouldn't mind feeling a little woozy and detached from your life i can see why you'd find that hugely bent like hugely a plus yeah and then you're kind of on a on a bad that's quite the trajectory to put your life on for sure yeah but yeah it's interesting um so it's a very odd issue, but I find it very neat. I, I've, I'm very influenced by this author um, and local doctor here, actually, who's now retired, uh, Gabor Mate, mm-hmm. um, who I would love to interview on this podcast. It's a dream of mine. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, he did ayahuasca with my dad. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> he's a he's a neat fella. I met him once when I was like a kid, and um, I know he has a very, uh, um, like I guess accepting view of addiction and that like as i was saying it's it's always like a a self-medication of a problem right um so he's always trying to think about like oh well what's why not the question isn't like why are you doing this but like what's causing you to do this what's the root of the issue and it's i find it's a much more compassionate look um at people because otherwise it's kind of just saying like oh there's a substance that's hijacking your brain and you're doing this because you can't control yourself it's like why are you doing that yeah i think i think there's like the second string to that bow though which is that being heavily medicated or drugged does interfere with one's ability to tackle things 
Absolutely. And and so it's like you kind of have to do both strings to the bow of like detoxing people in a horrendous way, but like part basically only as a a mechanism to get people into the place where maybe they can tackle some of that and like sort out some of the things that are are, are like causing the need for it effectively, I guess. But then it can be very discompassionate to be like, now nah, you need to sort yourself out before we're going to help you. Yeah. Cause it just doesn't work like that. Like you need a bit of both. You need a bit of both. And, uh, yeah. And, and then that's a huge problem, like logistically of like, how do you get all of those therapists? Yeah. Cause ultimately it's not just about like getting people off the streets or finding them jobs, but like dealing with the issues that they have to get them to a place where they can then live a life comfortably sober and, and, uh, you know, like integrate back into society. Absolutely. It's not uh, an easy thing to do. A hundred percent non. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's neat. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting one to think about how susceptible our brains are to like altering chemistry and, and how far out of the way people will go to change their experience if mm. they're not having a good one. Yeah. And I, I just like to bookend with that with like the city planning stuff. Yeah. Uh, and like i guess my my thoughts on climate change of like a lot of my issues is that people aren't doing things rather than that they're doing the wrong things like uh, less so with the well they're doing very little for like I, a lot of resources are going into the the drug issues in the city but like there's not much proactively well i mean there's loads of people doing loads of work i don't get me wrong I like yeah the, yeah yeah but like the city doesn't seem to be like have an uh, a, a overarching vision of like doing something proactive to like really address the root problem and like help people in a substantive way. There's a lot of like dealing with the issues that exist, like street safety and like making sure people have food and things. But like there's a there's a sort of lack of like visionary work there. It's the same with the like the climate change stuff. I have like endless arguments with my father about like doing something about climate change and he'll often be like no your your policy won't work or like no your suggestion won't work don't be so naive it, it couldn't work like that and i'd be like it, i kind of i would be willing to have those sorts of discussions if people were doing something and i just thought that they were a little bit wrong then i'd be willing to have like a nuanced discussion about like should we uh, you know like motivate companies using financial measures or using cap- like punishment or like or by giving them you know they're like a, they're like what's the mechanisms of state here i understand that that is nuanced but what i don't think is nuanced is actually doing something and like we're not doing something and so my suggestions don't your colliery to my suggestions are not doing something and that is as far as i'm concerned not a not an option well it's the worst option because you don't make anything better yeah it's like you could be making it actively worse and like just a little bit better than that is doing nothing <laughs> right and, and then like and, and then but you could you have like this whole world of things that you could be doing and like if they were happening then i'm sure some of my opinions about how to do those things are wrong i like i have no clue i have no 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 thought that i i actually have the answers on how to like solve climate change it's too big a problem or like even like uh, address vancouver's like uh, like drug drug issues how would you implement something like that at all like but like but like what i do know is you have to do something you actually have to go and do something and like that's my frustration is that people just aren't like the the governments aren't 
prioritizing it and aren't actually doing something and like i find that oh, quite upsetting um absolutely i i totally agree it's it's all about uh action ultimately yeah like if, if the city was trying to house everybody but not giving people therapy like one could have a debate all day about like how how to do that but they're not doing either of those things and <laughs> yeah. like both of them are necessary <laughs> absolutely yeah then it's all about the nuance of it like oh what do you do first how much of resource should we go to a or b yeah Whatever, like, like right? what sorts of therapies are effective for which people and like you know what what mechanisms can we you you know help people like be motivated to do stuff like all really interesting problems uh and like really interesting questions and like worthy of lots of discussion but like to me what isn't worthy of any discussion is should we do something like let's get doing something and we'll find out what's wrong and we'll we'll fix it and like particularly with climate change of like there's no point in having a discussion about whether or not like you know insulating all the houses is an effective way of dealing with it or something else just like do all of it like and then uh, discard the stuff that doesn't work but what like what isn't an option here is not doing any of it and that's what's happening and like you're humming and hawing about uh, this is me just reliving my my disagreements <laughs> like the suggestion of not uh, of like humming and hawing about whether or not something is a good solution it's just a really good way of not doing anything yeah, it's a lot better to do something and realize it was wrong and then learn from that and do it slightly better. And a lot than of to like do nothing. The good the good things, particularly in the UK, like a lot of the good things that we live with happened in the seventies when the government did stuff. You know, they invested a huge amount of money and built community centers and like the flat that I lived in was built in the seventies and like is a nice community flat. Um that they were sort of built you know for people to live in and and all sorts of things you know like um you if you ever go to like clubs in the middle of nowhere like uh i i'm thinking of a gun club because that's where we went for an archery competition last year they're all built in the 70s when the government gave people a load of money to build things and they're all frequented by people who now don't want the government to do anything like build gun clubs <laughs> Not that necessarily we need more gun clubs, but like we we could have clubs of some kind. We could have you know state subsidized social venues would be That'd perfectly be cool. real. But like those all things happened like in the seventies um, before like uh, in the UK before Thatcherism came in, and and like it's very frustrating to see people who've benefited their entire life from that sort of investment, then being like, no, we shouldn't do any more of that investment. My investment was fine, but like this new investment, that's not. That wouldn't benefit me. Yeah. Because I don't need a little club to play, you know, Monopoly and in the center of the city because I live in my, like, five-bedroom house in the outskirts. What a waste of money, right? <laughs> Giving community to people. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. But I don't know. I honestly don't know enough about it to have that strong of an opinion. Yeah, I, I I have lots of strong opinions. I, I hope that I'm right. I like I'm always hoping that that if I am just chatting complete nonsense, that like I have enough smart people who I'm friends with that they'll tell me that I'm full of crap. I like I hired for, when I when I was sorry, I used <laughs> I used to be CTO at a, at a company, and uh, is the main thing I was hiring for were people who'd like call me out on my nonsense. It's a valuable thing to have in an employee, isn't it? I, I, so much so. Because I was like, I, I chat a lot of nonsense, I'm sure. And like, what I really need to not have is someone who's going to agree with it <laughs> when it's it's wrong. Like, I need, I, that's the, I, you know, 
those people are also usually clever and like good at whatever job you give them uh, but like they need to be really keen to to just call everybody out on their bullshit constantly yeah well it's probably a spectrum you know you have people that are constantly agreeable and people that will just tell you how it is but some people are in the middle they'll be like that's fine that's passable yeah <laughs> or he could learn from that mistake <laughs> <laughs> and like i don't mean in like a mean way i i i, I really I, the people that uh, we ended up hiring were, were so good uh at, at that of like they wouldn't let things that were just factually wrong fly and like things that were dangerous or whatever like a hundred percent but like weren't mean about it at all um and that was that's that's like the perfect balance and those are those are rare people to find lucky to find someone who can who can be kind but also correct um it's a good thing to strive for it, it you know that's i i i uh, yeah i strive for it but i'm not sure <laughs> i hope i get the correct somewhat right and i hope i'm not too much of a bastard but <laughs> i'm sure there's plenty to improve on <laughs> always always but i mean like that would be pretty boring if there wasn't would it if you had it all sorted what, what would, would you, you do? do yeah what would you do <laughs> truly truly yeah. um <laughs> that was quite a, quite a good tangent i was i was hoping we could talk a little bit about technology because it seems like it's something you know s- some somewhat about sorry my mic is falling it's gonna be okay. in a weird spot yeah obstructing my vision from just the completely camera. blocking your your face yeah well you know i i i have a whole degree on technology supposedly what's your degree uh, so I have a computer science degree Oh, cool. Yeah, which is sort of like uh, maths, but for uh, worrying sand. Worrying sand? Yeah, well, like, I always say, like, computers are just very anxious sand. <laughs> it's, just, it's just sand that we've, like, tricked into just caring about numbers too much. And it's, it's a bit cruel in my mind. Well, that's interesting. I seem to make a lot of friends with people in computer science. Yeah, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know why that would be, but I, you know... I mean, I say that. These people were my friends before they got into computer science. So you corrupt a lot of people to go to computer science? I hope... Well... <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, what, like, have, what have you wrought for your friends to push them towards computer science? What life have you made for them? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's quite good. I, I always view it as like, it's like science, but for something that's entirely man-made and therefore much less complicated real science really hard you know like biology what the hell it's like incredibly complex uh like computers it's just a load of zeros and ones there's a lot of zeros and ones to be fair like trillions of them but like a countable number of zeros and ones whereas biology you've got all these like proteins and 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 fluids and and dna and all that <laughs> And like ion exchanges and, and all sorts of stuff that like is very small, very hard to observe, very hard to predict and like really matters. Yeah. I don't know. I've always been more of a biology fellow, but. Um... Yeah. But like computer science is like a, a science, but like a toy science because it's just it's like I'm going to do science on these Lego blocks that I've made <laughs> rather than these real life rocks or yeah. whatever, because they're much simpler and I know what Lego blocks are like. Yeah, I was actually learning about it the other night. I went to a St. Patrick's Day party, and um, by the end of it, I was talking to two of my friends about, like, 
bit redundancies and like um parody bits and stuff i'm and so like, sorry no it's really interesting it totally blew my mind mm. um but anyway it's a random tangent that i hope we don't dig into because it took me forever to like clue into how it worked I'm, I'm not sure i could accurately explain it really that's it's been too far too too long fair i yeah. mean it i feel like school gives you a lot of knowledge about things that you will never use yeah although and occasionally you do use it and it's so satisfying yeah i mean there was this moment where we were just launching um like a clinical trial like next week with the the, i I used to work for a mental health diagnostic startup and um we just about start it wasn't a clinical trial it was a university trial um and like so we had it had like a week to get this product like finished and i like found an issue where like if you had put in this like third-party diagnostic tools data in with with our like surveys data result thing like it went wrong in a specific way that we hadn't been able to test because it had two systems talking to each other and i like realized that i could solve this using like one of the like first binary logic uh like tools that you use which is like a conversion between two different forms of binary logic i realized i could use this and that, like, finally my degree was coming in, like, clutch. And it was just so, it was such, like, a wonderful one. I was like, ah, to Morgan's theorem, I can use it. I can use it, finally. I've actually used, like, a concretely part of my degree. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. It was such a good good moment. And because um, mostly you don't, you just use the, like, the, like, the, the, you've picked up a lot of knowledge, but you don't think you n- think of it as knowledge. Like, I, I, don't, I feel like the uh, some people are like, oh, you don't need a computer science degree. What are you talking about? And I'm like, but I kind of understand now, like pretty instinctually how computers work in their entirety. Like any part of a computer, I could at least have a guess of how it worked. Probably not accurately or in detail, but like I've got instinctual understanding vaguely of how it works. And like, I think that's what my degree gave me, which is actually incredibly useful. Yeah. But... but uh, I don't use the like knowledge that the degree gave me very often, but like that vibe, like that instinctual understanding of how computers work is I do use constantly because it's how you know what to tell the computer to do and how to do it well. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I was having a conversation with my friend Evan, who's a childhood friend of mine. And again, one of the people I somehow tricked into computer science. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh anyway we've been friends since like i don't know preschool or something mm-hmm. kindergarten way back and um he was i remember like years ago i had this conversation with him where he felt fed up about um school because mm-hmm. he felt like he wasn't using any of the knowledge or like it wasn't practical right and, and more recently because he's going to graduate next year i believe he's a fourth year student and um he was realizing that it wasn't the knowledge that was really useful, but a greater understanding of the field as well as the skill of how to learn things. Yeah. That was super valuable. The real computer science was the friends you made along the way. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was I, neat. Um, I, I think so. I think more, more than a lot of people give computer science courses credit for. Because I... I you see a lot of like programmers say like, Oh, college is a waste of time. You can just take like a course on how to program, but like the how to program bit is not the bit that you learn. Yeah. Like for instance, my, my course there, we did a little bit of programming, but we were never taught how to program. 
like none of our courses involved programming really they just assumed you'd figure that out yeah they're just like well if you can kind of survive here uh yeah you'd learn how to program take a course on it yeah i mean if you're like interested enough to get into this course to start with you probably already program let's be honest and if you don't like why are you here just learn how to program really it's not that hard and so they would teach us like weird esoteric programming things like weird languages that no one used because they like made your brain think differently about stuff and then that that's the only programming really they taught us cool it's just like weird stuff that it's like a, a mind screw screw thing and then like other than that it's like you'll learn how to program you'll like pick something up obviously like you're gonna have some coursework at some point that's probably gonna involve some programming but you will have already learned it yeah like uh that happened to my other friend who got into computer science <laughs> he um he he's actually he's he's my friend john who wants to go into city planning mm. and um uh like what a smart fella and he out of high school did a learned to code on his own did a course to get a certification and then got a high paying job to pay for his university degree oh, right cool. out of high school that's, that's like so 18 cool. working like a full-time programming job like a salaried wage or whatever like, yeah it's so cool there we go <laughs> you know, i mean programming is such like a gold rush like i feel so unfairly lucky that it happens to be something that i'm good at at this point in time in the whole of like human existence the whole like even the last like six decades that i could have been born or whatever like grow up in like it happens to be that something that i i'm pretty good at uh is like hugely overvalued do you think it's overvalued or just like extremely valuable i think it's like it is extremely valuable but like much like i don't know being a nurse is extremely valuable or like knowing how to make food well is extremely valuable i think it is slightly harder to learn than some of those other things but i think that's partly because it's like an entirely new field that we don't really know how to teach and so i like 20 years down the line 40 years down the line i suspect that programmings will not be paid an outlandish amount of money in the same way probably still as much as like a highly skilled profession right because it is still a highly skilled profession but like yeah not astronaut like not really properly amazingly good salaries from the get-go which is kind of how programmers are paid now yeah and I, and i, I just feel incredibly I <laughs> yeah i just feel incredibly lucky that that happens to be what number one i'm interested in number two what my parents like sort of by accident got me into because i don't think they were like i don't think my dad was trying to get me into programming but like we did a little bit of programming because he did it um and and what like i happen to be kind of unfairly good at of all the things i've tried um i just so so fortunate because like if my passion and what i was really good at was like caring for people medically um i mean i guess i could be a doctor but like if i wanted to be a nurse it's not like it's it's not like i would be paid enough to like not have to worry about things yeah and like i i recognize that as like it's just tremendous luck yeah in a way well like if i wanted to be an artist and i would be like i was a really good artist like i wanted to pursue the ceramics full time like i could probably make a living off it but like it's not like i'd be comfortable and chilling yeah well then then you turn like a passion project into something that you need to do to eat and i feel like that takes away a lot of it as well for sure but like i i think people should be able to make a full-time living off 
of that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, but it just sort of doesn't really work or like barely works to be a full-time artist. Yeah. Unless you get really lucky. Yeah. Or, or like gr- grift, like super hard, like work really, 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 really hard and like do everything all at once, like teach and, and create and do marketing for yourself, right? Like do the social media stuff and create content. And like, if you push really hard, then like, sure. Like I, I, uh, I know a girl up in Squamish, she's like doing an amazing job of it by like setting up her entire like living space to be incredibly aesthetic to make like good content and like teaches alongside and has like this impeccably curated vibe and it's very impressive but like it's very all-encompassing I think for her to like get a reasonable job out of it whereas like most jobs I think you should just be able to leave at the end of your day and you know not think about them too much yeah I would hope so but I think art art doesn't kind of afford you that yeah well it, it takes a special person to want to be an artist yeah gotta be a little obsessed about it for sure for sure because uh i don't know it's a it's a big time commitment to create it is and a bit and like a big emotional thing like one of the things i didn't kind of expect when i started work was how instantly my like ability to make some of my bigger pieces disappeared because they take i hadn't realized they take just a colossal amount of emotional investment to like see something that takes that long that like can go wrong at any second into being it's just it's like it's so much work and like so much hype for it that as soon as you've like got anything else that drains a bit of your energy away that it's just like the hype is not enough to get over like that activation energy yeah it's really scary especially when it's something that can break or can fail on you and i have had pieces i had a piece like my first really big sculpture that i did um just fell apart in front of my eyes like um just it had like this big comb on the top of it uh like with all holes in it and stuff and then the the body was like a sort of ship shape body although i i kept denying that it was ship shaped um and uh the comb just dried fully but the bottom was still a bit soft oh and it just cracked obviously because it's just it's just dust that's sort of held together by hopes and dreams and uh and just like fell in front of me and i was like I was like 20, 30 hours in at this point to this piece. It was like the biggest thing I've ever made. It was the, I think still one of the best things I've ever made. And, and, and actually like it was made when it fell over, like when, when the it pieces fell off. It No, 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 it was good. It made it so much better. Really? Yeah. It, it, there's something about like that first screw up that is so hard to replicate it's so like for my what i'm trying to achieve it's it was just it's such a good piece because it it just works in that like ruined artifact thing that i never would have done i never would have done that to a piece you never would have taken a hammer to it and once it was done you got this like perfect thing you've spent 30 hours making you're like you know this really needs is to be broken (laughs) Right, like no, no one's gonna do that. But it's partly how it happened, like that it worked so well. Like was just partly about the structure that it was built. But like it, yeah, and it, it. I mean, that taught me a lot of zen. But also, like to kind of be like, oh, okay, you know, 
um you can you can take things going wrong like that and and sometimes they're great sometimes you just need to throw them away but like just occasionally it becomes better than you ever could have done yeah and so like just not to be too annoyed about it yeah well failure is a is so important to learn from isn't it yeah i think so i would think so and it's i think it's one of the joys of learning right like i i realized a while ago i really like learning new things and i also realized that i was never going to be like the world's best anything which is very like obvious right like who who is but it's very like, liberating it's uh, right but then i realized like hang on i could be like above solidly above average at, at a huge variety of things um not for not that like without that much investment in time and um you know just as as a fun bit and and i called this philosophy as a very stupid polymath <laughs> So instead of like a polymath, you know, which is obviously quite a lofty term and not something that I really think anyone should ever apply to themselves or really have applied to them except sort of posthumously. Um, polymath is the philosophy that you can be like solidly mediocre at a load of stuff. And like, it's the new like Renaissance man light. Uh, and it's good fun and like good for like parties because you can be like, oh yeah, I did that. And like... <laughs> i get that <laughs> yeah and so and so i was like hey, i could do i could do this properly and so like i went to learn yeah you know, i learned the pottery and that was started as like a little hobby that i might do and it sort of extended way past but like the uh like i went and learned to stone carve and like ice skate and and like um ice uh, uh glass blow um and all sorts of things i just gone on like tried to I just learn did a glass blowing class it's so much fun it's really fun it's, i love the like dance aspect to it I, I i had it with like a torch so i didn't actually blow into anything oh you're doing like um bench glass or whatever it's called is, Lab, I, is that, like yeah i didn't know what the term for it was called. yeah but yeah just like a torch and a huge flame and some pieces of glass and you just like stick them together and something comes out yeah of it. I, I if you get the opportunity like 100 percent tried doing blowing and like the 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 large scale stuff or like just just even glass scale size because you start having to work with another person because someone like you go and charge the the irons in in the glass like the puddle of glass and then you start shaping them and then you blow it and then somebody else like sometimes holds a wooden paddle to like shield your arm from getting burnt and then like sometimes particularly as a beginner someone will take the it's called a punty or something that the that the glass is on will take it and put it in the fire for you because like it allows you to move quicker and so things are starting to happen in like you know you've got the glass out of the fire for like uh like 20 seconds before it cools off too much to to work with and so it's this dance where you have to like be in sync with people and move and obviously you can't touch the glass because it's <laughs> red hot um but also like the longer it's in the fire the more back to a sphere it goes and you're kind of trying to avoid that and like the further it's out it just becomes hard and it could crack at any time and like explode yeah i noticed i let my piece cool down too much and it just like cracked and i had to reheat it and melt it all back together yeah and and like but as soon as you got multiple people involved it's very addicting in that same way um that like i guess we were talking about earlier that it's like that live feeling like nothing you have to be on then because you've got a red hot piece of glass in your hands and you are paying attention 
And like, if you don't pay attention, you're going to screw up your day or somebody else's day and it's going to be very sad. And like, that was so much fun. I really enjoyed glass blowing. Yeah. I I would love to try it one day. It's definitely. kind of a high, uh, high barrier to entry to like doing it as a hobbyist. Yeah. You need to get like a, a club or a, like a course or something to, to get it. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like um, be part of a, a joint studio or something. But yeah, then... that's, yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. By club. Oh, joint right. studio. Yeah. 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 Um, but then you have to be like really into it. Yeah, because you got like, membership fees and and time and and it's going to be like stuff. thousand, like a thousand dollars a month or something. To shit, it's a maybe. lot of money. Yeah, I I don't know if it's that much, but I could imagine because you only get like you only get like a handful of artists per space because it takes so much room. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you need these huge furnaces and all this equipment and stuff. And just like room to move around and like room to anneal your pieces. Right, they have to cool down. If you're doing big pieces, they have to cool down for like eight hours in a in a furnace right um and so yeah it's just like a huge it's a huge thing but i i really enjoyed that and like all, all the other things so i i i'm always after like learning new new stuff yeah so it's, it's just so much fun i would agree and like uh, after a few times also there's a huge satisfaction in like being okay at actually learning new things like you get the knack of the learning bit like not the new thing but like you kind of pick it up kind of quick once you've done it a few like few different things because what 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 if you could put your finger on it what do you think that skill is of like um being able to learn things quicker i think the, the number one one is like not getting discouraged at being terrible or something is it 100% like partic- less so with like physical stuff because you're usually one is usually okay to start with like better it, like the learning curve is less steep i think with physical stuff generally what do you mean by physical stuff well like it might take might take uh i don't know it takes like 20 minutes on a lathe to start to at least get a cut where you're not terrified right or like with throwing to make like a, a terrible mug it'll be like your third attempt and you'll be like two hours in whereas like I know, like learning 3D software or learning a new programming thing or learning a new like conceptual thing. It could be like days, weeks of like sucking badly and feeling like you know nothing. I get that. And 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 I guess same with like maybe same with like instruments maybe as well because they're, they're much more dexterous and like much less transferable skills from your usual day-to-day life. Yeah. That being ready to suck for like a week is kind of or like two weeks or like two months or more (laughs) is is something that requires like practice i think yeah and and like some i think that's that's one of the big skills and i think particularly for people who are struggling and like being frustrated by stuff it can be really useful. Actually, something that I think like social media really doesn't help with because we see people who are really good and we also like are encouraged to to share our stuff right from the get-go. And so it can be quite demotivating if it's terrible. Yeah. Well, also people glamorize it a lot, I find. With yeah. Anything, like, you know? I think people should be, feel good about being like okay at things. Yeah. Well, it's much it's, better than being not meh. Exactly. Right. Like it's, it's, it's much better than not doing something, even if you're bad at it. Like it's much better than not doing something. Um, unless obviously you're doing like harm to people, but like if you if you're terrible hey, at, least at painting, you're good at doing it, right? Like <laughs> if you're if you're painting or something, like even if it sucks, it's better than not painting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so 
anyway, so I think like being ready to suck at stuff. That's 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 number one. And then there's some like specifics I think about trying to get as much out of the like demonstrations that people do as possible of like trying to really read what their body is doing as much as possible and that's more with more so with the physical stuff that requires more of your body engaged yeah um like throwing for instance like watching properly like where are people's weight going like where's their and like climbing as well right like being a bit more analytical about both the other person's movement and your own can really help like get quickly and and like quite often i've been in the position where i've been able to ask instructors like in one-on-one time like what where's your weight going when you're doing that like what what are you doing and i think that can be really helpful and actually often instructors are like huh i haven't thought of that before and like you're like no it really does matter like where where's your weight going i uh, like when i was learning to ice skate um like where's your weight going there and they're like oh let me try it out and then they'll do it and then they'll tell you and then you'll be like okay no my weight should have been near my toes there and that's why i'm having problems yeah i noticed that with skiing actually i I used to skate very, like, heel-heavy. Mm. And then uh, someone gave me the tip to, like, feel it through, like, my toes and, like, the ball of my foot and my big toe, like, pushing. Right. And that totally changed it. And I'd never thought about it. No one told me that. Right, 100%. <laughs> and, like, when you're trying to, like, accelerate the learning process, it's, like, trying to work out partly from what your instructors are saying, like, what they're hinting at, but, like, trying to really incise down to what, like, what matters there um so i think those are the two two things um and and just just going for it yeah i think those are uh extremely valuable things um yeah i guess the one thing i would add thinking of your list one thing that i think is super important is actually just like the breadth of experience of trying new things yeah like the actual connection you make to like the physical literacy of a skill or like the conceptual knowledge like as you were saying like learning weird esoteric coding things that makes you think about it in more ways so when you're applying it it helps you or like and there's always like little transferable bits of the toolbox or whole swathes of the toolbox it, it totally that that just mean that you can like lift a huge amount of of stuff and like i guess you know I, i've grown up making stuff my whole life and so that gives me quite good and i it sounds like you've got the same thing of like quite a good just ability to do stuff with your hands i would hope so yeah and like that means learning a new like physical art skill is a lot easier because you already have the dexterity and like knowledge of how to use your hands and like that already gives you a big lift absolutely and so once you learn one skill it um, it makes the next skill twice as easy to learn and then the next skill not twice as easy but slightly easier again and like you get the transferable stuff and yeah absolutely but you'd never get there if you weren't willing to try a hundred percent and i think that's there's one thing that like i feel very very fortunate to have been given in like in my childhood is like this belief that you can make things i i think it's like i i don't know this is like me getting very like probably nonsense philosophical of like i think that there are there are people who just believe blindly that they can probably make something or do something uh like particularly make things and like it occurs to them to do it and then there's a lot of people who because they never have particularly particularly well growing up it just doesn't occur to them 
that they could. And that if you can switch, like flip that switch, then you'll become a making kind of person. I get what Even you if mean. you're terrible at it, like that, you very quickly become not terrible at it as soon as you actually do it. But like, if it occurs to you that like, huh, I've got this problem. Hang on, I could just make something for it. Like, I think that's it's one of the very few things where like I th- I think I see like distinct differences between people that I think I can point to because lots of like people are mostly the same and like there's big spectrums. But I do feel like some people it just occurs to them that they could make something in this particular case and then to a lot of other people it just never occurs to them that they could do that yeah and i i don't find people who are like in the middle where they're like occasionally think i i could do that but i think it's so empowering i think it's so it's so good to be able to make stuff that like i want everyone to be on that bandwagon of like i could just do that couldn't i it frustrates me immensely when i talk to people and i'm like just do it and they're like nah yeah and i just i i i i i i want people to have that yeah absolutely it's so fun like um i don't know someone wants to like oh it'd be fun to make art and make something yeah i'm too busy or i'm not a very artistic person i'll leave that to artists i'm like no yeah and i i i I do think it's like it's it's a legacy that we get from our childhood a lot yeah, I could see that. Um, I think it can be overwritten. Like, it's not like an innate thing that you get programmed into your childhood. But I do think that, like, it it is pretty, like, ingrained in us of, like, whether we could just do something or not. And I, I, I really hope when I have kids, I can get them to have that. Yeah. You know, that self-belief. Man, yeah, it's such a, a valuable thing. Like, I don't know what I would do with myself if I didn't have that belief. 100%. <laughs> Damn. That uh, is a great segue into the mandatory part of me interviewing people. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> what What were you like as a little little human being? A, a small Giles. A small Giles. I was very small. Really. That's the first thing. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm still not a huge a huge guy, but like um I was exceptionally tiny as a child, all the way up till I guess I was about like fourteen or something, and then. Um, there's not like I had a huge growth spurt. I was still quite small. <laughs> I got to be like more normal size at that point. But yeah, all, all of my like school pictures are like I'm tiny, just absolutely minuscule. Uh, it's very funny. Um, but apparently, I I I didn't really not see myself as an adult. Yeah, like I had like very little kind of imposter syndrome. <laughs> apparently, it's one of the few things that I can like point to. How how so? I just like. I think I spoke to adults as if I was like one of them a lot. <laughs> like take took part in discussions as if I was like a peer. Um which I think is like it's a uh it can be quite like a off-putting characteristic to quite a lot of people. Um but also like serves you very well in life. I find. So you feel like you've carried that on to this day. I think so. That, like, I don't, there's very few people or, like, no people who I would think that I couldn't raise my opinion with them on something, that my opinion would be less valid than theirs. I mean, like, on facts, absolutely, but, like, that I wouldn't be worthy just based on who they are, that I couldn't, like, have a chat with them. 
And I yeah. think, uh, and I think like lots of adults have that, but like, I, I guess that was a, a slightly more unusual thing as a child, but like mm-hmm. it does serve you very well, particularly in like career stuff. Uh, but also just generally like to just be able to talk to people who are really interesting and who you kind of like a bit starstruck by but like not be phased by it um, yeah it does piss people off though but uh, yeah, I, I take that it's uh it's a good recipe for an interesting life which is kind of the whole objective there the goal the whole i mean you know what else is the point really truly so <laughs> here's here's minuscule giles and and you're you're uh chatting up people do you think you've changed a lot as like a a person? Do you feel like you've maintained like a stable image of yourself or have you gone through like a big iterative changes? I think broadly I've stayed fairly similar. Okay. I think one thing that did happen as I was leaving university is I really became a lot more conscientious. Yeah. Like, cause I'm now, I think like almost obnoxiously conscientious as much as I, probably not not like to an extreme degree but like i'm quite obnoxious about my conscientiousness uh, and i i will put myself in a lot of like inconvenience to do the right thing a lot of the time by conscientiousness are you talking about it in like a, a personality shift like very like orderly um uh trying to do things like a certain way how would you define conscientious? I, I think i mean like conscientious morally okay Although, like, I don't think I'm morally perfect. But, like, when I was in university, I really didn't... And, like, this is classic for, for like, children, basically. Uh, like, not really cared that much about one's impact on the world. And, like, g- leaving university, I was like, oh, well, you know, like, weapons manufacturers have pretty interesting technology. Like, you know, that's, that's where some money is. And, like, you play with cool tech and things. And then... Uh, I, I actually went went to work for a, a charity that that helped um, aid organizations in in sub-Saharan Africa like prove that what they was doing was effective. So like education programs for like helping women learn about uh, pregnancy health, that sort of stuff. Things that are like you know pretty near colonialist, but like probably quite good. Like it's probably quite good to teach to teach women more about their pregnancy experience and that sort of stuff and like teach youths about using contraception and like de-signify it and stuff like it seemed good um and i worked with with those people like by accident just because of like someone i met uh randomly and like through that and just maturing as an adult i became quite morally like strong in a way that i never was until that moment interesting yeah and that that I find kind of interesting because I, I I was pretty late to that, right? I was like 21 when that happened. And so I, I have had enough self-introspection through that time to like know what I was thinking then and that like I was a fully conscious person and like should have been more responsible. But also to know that I was just like, yeah, I could go and work for some like heinous people and do some heinous shit. But uh, it would be, you know, like, well, it would be interesting um and now like i don't like shop at amazon and i haven't done for four and a half years because i don't like like how unhappy the delivery drivers are that's the main reason it just seemed like an awful company i mean yeah for sure like unshout out to amazon uh, absolutely (laughs) unshout out but like you know it's really annoying to not buy stuff from amazon particularly here like it's a huge pain and so 
don't know that's a pretty pathetic example but like i i do a load of i do, uh, like and, and i choose jobs based on like what seems at least vaguely morally virtuous and like things and uh and i just never could have imagined doing that as like a 18 year old and huh me that's a cool shift to have. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with the shift. Just I to would be, imagine. Yeah, like, <laughs> uh, I'm sort of a bit like, what the hell was I thinking back in the day? But like, um, and I wasn't, a uh, like, a, along with that, I wasn't a, uh, as nice a person, I think, as I am. Like, I don't think I cared about people as much as I should have done. But I hope I do more now. Yeah. It's a good thing to strive towards, yeah. isn't it? cool i certainly care more about being nice to people i think that's good i'm glad to hear it which is a good start yeah uh you've come off as a very um generous and kind person at least in my experience knowing you that's very that's good (laughs) that's true i I like that's what the thing about like people calling me out on my bullshit as well as like i like to know when i've like crossed lines and stuff um yeah it's particularly like scandinavian people shout out to scandinavian people for being very honest about things that they don't like about you and that being very helpful yeah i i don't think i inherited that from and, my scandy genes oh <laughs> okay and the dutch yeah i if you meet dutch people they are so upfront it's like it's very disarming and like quite strange uh i get it my but, my friend evan who i mentioned is a uh, dutch and He'll tell you how it is. Yeah, and I, I love good. that. I absolutely love that. Um, it, it, it's it's very kind of reassuring in a very disarming way that you kind of know that you're not screwed up because yeah. they will have told you. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that. Yeah, I, I have that. an immense amount of respect for people who, who who are like that. I think it's a very healthy way to be. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always striving for it, but I've I've been a very agreeable person my whole life and so mm. it's very hard for me to uh t- say it like it is sometimes it's it's a it's a work in progress always yeah and i think there's like i feel like it's harder if you're not it's not obviously a cultural divide like i think like in the uk and i imagine canada like if you meet a dutch person with like a dutch accent and a dutch mannerism and then they tell you something that coming from a like a person who'd grown up in england would sound pretty rude but then they just tell you something that's like true but like kind of rude maybe or like you kind of wouldn't necessarily hear from an english person and if it if you came from just like someone who'd grown up in your town you'd be like what the hell you just said that to me like what 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 did i do to hurt you and then you're like (laughs) oh yeah okay yeah it's just it's like it's just a cultural difference here and and like it's very valuable but like i think if if you or i like tried to do exactly the same thing i think people would not take it as a cultural divide thing but like as a personality divide thing and that they might be less receptive to it i don't know that's true but um i i feel like it kind of ties into the whole unsolicited advice thing where if you tell someone something's wrong they might already know it and they really don't want to hear it Mm. (laughs) so yeah 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 i really don't know but then like it is hugely valuable someone to sometimes to have someone tell you 
that something's wrong because you sometimes don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, sometimes it forces you to face problems that you wouldn't otherwise face because it's very easy to know something is wrong and do nothing about it. Yeah. But if someone calls you out on it, you're like, yeah, you're noticing it too. Maybe it's, <laughs> yeah, it's time, to- <laughs> time to do something. Maybe it is time to have that shower after. <laughs> <laughs> Are you calling me stinky? I'm. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. I'm just, it's just a, uh, an easy example, right? Like, it's okay. Rather right. than like personality <laughs> flaw thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Um, I don't know how long you wanted this to run for because it is like already past 11. Holy shit. We've so, been going for almost two and a half hours. Oh my God. <laughs> I find uh very easy to lose track of time when that, recording these. That is. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah. I should, I should probably head home soon. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's been really fun. It has been. It's been. It's been great fun. It's and I, I finally fulfilled my destiny. Yeah. As like a twenty-something guy, <laughs> to be on a podcast. <laughs> is this is this true? I, uh, you know, I was the last man standing. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it was bound to happen. It was bound to happen. I guess so. I've been got. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun, isn't it? It's great fun um yeah it's kind of a cringy hobby but like it's really fun <laughs> oh, no, i know i i'm i'm never i listen to so many podcasts <laughs> me too so it'd be like so much the pot calling the kettle black if i uh if i had anything bad to say but it just it does seem like a it's a classic like mid-20s guy thing isn't it yeah yeah absolutely um yeah i am the stereotype sorry guys <laughs> but uh i don't know man that was great yeah uh, i don't know do you have anything you want to say any closing statements any uh i get out the speech i prepared it's uh yeah <laughs> uh it's been it's been good fun i'm um, glad i i think it's uh yeah i i always enjoy like i don't know it's been fun it's been fun yeah i enjoy these sorts of chats me too uh um, i think it went surprisingly well for not having a script do you, you completely word for word script these usually? I have questions scripted and then I will deviate from them slightly or add things to them depending on the context. Okay. But like yeah. usually what I say is planned. Okay. Fair. And I just let the other person do it. But I'd like the vibe that this has gone to. Yeah. It's, it's good. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess the only things I have to say is like uh, uh, check out my um, my things. That yeah. will be in the the links or whatever. I'll I'll provide them. Um and uh yeah, be 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 nice to people. That's my hot take. It's a pretty original idea. <laughs> be a good person. Yeah, be be a yeah, good good person. But that specifically means being nice to people and do things that make people happy. I think. Yeah, that's there we go. Well, thanks. Yeah, yeah, it's been super fun. I got to do a little thank you, as is customary for me, because I've received a lot of help along the way in this journey um of like i don't know just doing this it's pretty crazy like uh uh my friend eldritch has made me like a logo and a and a backdrop and like i have a thing to post on social media now that's sick my friend sam uh made me theme music which i could probably do now but i'm too nostalgic to let it go because it was way before i learned how to do anything on instruments uh i gotta thank reiner for teaching me how to do all the lighting and the audio stuff um i want to i want to say thank you to uh my friends john and um noah for helping me get ableton in different forms (laughs) thank you to the both of you um 
I want to thank my dad for helping me get some of the gear, like the microphone you're using and some other crap. So thanks. And uh, uh, I want to say a big thank you to my mom, who's my only sponsor, as I like to say, because she uh, lets me do this here. (laughs) It's a pretty invaluable. Shout out to your mom. Yeah. So a little little round of applause for my special sponsor. Thanks, mom. And and shout out to all those people too. Yeah. And and thank you yeah well uh, thank you for having me thank you for coming on and thanks to to my parents um who who uh had me yeah and 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 set me up pretty pretty fantastically in life and uh i I sometimes i feel like i'm i'm too too harsh on them for some things like the the political stuff but like it's very mild but also like i'm i'm stupendously grateful for how supportive they are and like how much they've done for me it's a beautiful thing yeah and and like i you know i love them to bits and and uh and shout out obviously to alna who who moved uh, to a whole different continent with me that's pretty cool that's pretty crazy isn't it it's pretty it's pretty cool yeah it's it's nice to have someone to love you i i think so yeah, yeah. it's that's a very nice. magical thing yeah truly all right um i guess that's a podcast Cool. Uh, I turned things off, I guess. Ah. <laughs> uh.